Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas, and I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. What is going on this morning, guys? We're over the hump. Yes, we are. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome How you doing, to Reese? the wild world of Thursday. The wild world of Thursday. I'm digging your shirt, man. I, 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 I like yours, too. I, I like those oh. pattern, pattern <laughs> shirts. Every so often, you may see me in a pattern shirt and have some under it, but it's a little chilly, so I, I close the shirt They're up. over here looking like the Bobsy twins. Right. <laughs> right. That's what's it's like, hey, I like what you're wearing. I like what you're wearing. Good job. My phrase is, I like saying, well, you know, great lines, great minds think, think like, like me. That's right. I think like you. Yeah, think like me. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, um, you guys ready um, for the week? I guess the weekend. Like, yeah, two more days. I am ready for the weekend. It is HU's homecoming. Howard University's is homecoming. It? Yes, it is. Oh. So I'll be spending Friday and Saturday up on the yard. Nice. Go ahead. That should be fun. Yeah, I do it every year. Um, COVID kind of interrupted everything, but now we're getting back to it. Yeah. Okay, okay. Do you go to the game? No. Go games? Who goes to games during homecoming? We don't go to games. We go to the tailgate. Oh, oh the tailgate. Yeah, we don't go to the games themselves. We just tailgate. It's like, I don't want to see these guys play. No, not I just, interested. I just want the after party. Oh, totally not. Okay. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Let's get the headlines. In breaking news, EU slaps sanctions over Iran over alleged military assistance to Russia in Ukraine. Mmm. Seems like Someone's a little angry there. In domestic news, slightly fewer than half of Americans have high confidence that the vote will be counted accurately in the upcoming 2022 midterm elections. A new poll by the National Opinion Research Center and Associated Press showed on Associated Press showed on Wednesday a total of 47% of Americans say they have a great deal or quite a bit of confidence. Another 24% have a moderate amount of confidence and 28% have either only a little confidence or none at all. Among Democrats, 74% say they are highly confident on the Republican side. Only 25% have high confidence, 30% have moderate confidence, and 45% have little to no confidence according to the poll. 52% of respondents say that U.S. democracy is not working well. Only 9% of Americans said democracy is working extremely or very well. As a registered Republican, I can say myself, I have 100% confidence in the elections. Probably shouldn't, but I do. Police in Central Florida arrested a man on Sunday who they said intended to create an active shooter situations with officers and start a war. The Putnam County Sheriff's Offices said that Glenn Ressler, 42, of Interlaken, Florida, was angry at police for seizing his driver's license during a recent traffic stop because it had already been suspended. The sheriff's office said they sent officers to investigate Ressler's home early Sunday after receiving word about his plans to retaliate for the seizure of his license. Our favorite former U.S. President Donald Trump was deposed on Wednesday for a civil lawsuit 
accusing him of defaming E. Jean Carroll in response to her accusing the one-term commander-in-chief of rape. That's not my type. <laughs> it has been reported. Carol, who is now 78 years old, accused Trump of raping her in a dressing room in the Manhattan Burg of Goodman department store in the 1990s after the pair met in the store. The accusation first appeared in a 2019 New York Magazine article when Trump was still president. At the time, Trump defended himself saying Carol, quote, wasn't even his type and accused her of being motivated by political and monetary reasons to make up the story. Carol responded by suing Trump in New York court for defamation. If you remember, a number of women were trotted out during the 2016 elections, alleging that Donald Trump had sexually assaulted and or raped them. Nothing came of those cases, unless we're talking about Stormy Daniels. Former U.S. President, former U.S. Vice President Mike Pence rejected in a speech at the Conservative Heritage Foundation the still widespread populist movement that his old boss Donald Trump continues to champion and lead. Quoting Vice President Pence, our movement cannot forsake the foundation commitment we have to security, to limited government, and to life, Pence said in a speech on Wednesday. But neither... Can we allow our movement to be led astray by the siren song of unprincipled populism that is unmoored from our oldest traditions and most cherished values? Pence voiced no personal criticism of Donald Trump and only referred to him by name as a man I deeply admire. But Pence also made clear he had timed his remarks as anticipation of a Republican resurgence in the midterm congressional elections in November that he predicted would restore control of Congress to the Republican Party. Hmm. Pence goes over to the Heritage Foundation. Not sure he disagrees with Trump on a whole lot other than the election was not stolen. But Pence is a great guy. Like him or not, I think he's a great guy. Moving on to international news, Russian President Vladimir Putin has signed a decree on the introduction of a state of martial law in Kherson, Zaporozhye, the Donetsk and Republic, the Donetsk, the Donetsk People's, Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republic. Quoting, I have signed a decree on the introduction of a state of martial law in these four constituent entities of the Russian Federation. It will immediately be sent for approval to the Federation Council, which is Russia's upper house of parliament, and the state Duma will be informed of the decision. Putin said this at speaking at a meeting of the Russian Security Council on Wednesday. The Federation Council is expected to convene later in the day to rubber stamp the decree. The text of the decree has been published on the Kremlin's website and indicates that martial law was introduced at zero hours on October 20th in the affected areas. The decree is grounded in provisions in the Russian Constitution and the 2002 federal law on martial law. In more news, the German embassy in Tehran has allegedly played a significant role in the unrest in Iran and coordinated insurgents' actions in the course of Western governments to foment the conflict in the Islamic Republic the FARS news agency reported on Wednesday. <laughs> According to the report, the German embassy has allegedly played a significant 
and effective role in the diplomatic pressure and international coordination to foment unrest in Iran. The embassy coordinated foreign governments and international organizations to increase pressure on the domestic situation in the Islamic Republic, according to Fars. German diplomats have also allegedly held a series of meetings with employees of Western embassies in Tehran, during which they were discussing ways to increase unrest and further destabilize the situation in Iran. In more international news, all parties in the Finnish parliament are in agreement about the necessity to build a fence along parts of the 1,300-kilometer land border between Finland and Russian, Russia, Pr Prime Minister Sanna Marin said, herself an eager supporter of the idea and also said after the recent debates on the infrastructure project by the Finnish border guard. The Finnish government, Marin said, will set aside funding for a test section of the fence in a supplementary budget later this year and funding for the broader project based on experiences from the test section in a supplementary budget. The issue of U.S. biolabs in Ukraine has once again received wide international publicity. On October 18th, Belarus, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, China, Cuba, Nicaragua, Syria, and Russia called for invoking Article 6 of the Biological Weapons Convention, the BWC, because of U.S. military and biological activities in Ukraine. Article 6 of the BWC allows state parties to lodge a complaint with the UN Security Council if they suspect a breach of treaty obligations by another state. In the event of such a development, the United States as a state party to the convention would be obliged to cooperate in any investigation that may be initiated by the UNSC. Chinese experts interviewed by Sputnik believed that if the U.S. has nothing to hide, it should provide a comprehensive explanation. In more international news, inflation has jumped to almost 10% across the Eurozone as the EU molds a price cap on Russian gas imports. Eurostat, the data center of the EU's executive body, the European Commission, said prices in September were 9.9% higher than the same time last year across the 19 countries that used the euro currency. That was a significant increase on the 9.1% rate Eurostat reported in August. UK Home Security Suela, so UK Home Secretary Suela Braverman, Braverman Resignation, Chief Whip Wendy Morton's attempt to step down in a Tory MP revolt over fracking have prompted new speculation among conservative lawmakers that under fire Prime Minister Liz Truss could be forced out of number forced out of office within weeks or even days, according to the British news outlet. The outlet also quoted an unnamed senior backbencher as saying that this is the beginning of the end for Lady Truss. According to the source, she will be gone by Christmas, if not before. I don't think they're waiting for that 15 or 17 days anymore now. They want her out. <laughs> they want her out now. <laughs> Immediately. 
The insider was echoed by former Brexit advisor David Frost, who wrote in the article for The Telegraph that the UK prime minister just can't stay in office. On this day in history, 1803, the U.S. Senate ratifies the Louisiana Purchase. In 1917, U.S. suffragette Alice Paul begins a seven-month jail sentence for peacefully picketing in support of the women's suffrage amendment at the White House in Washington, D.C. In 1944, U.S. forces under General Douglas MacArthur returned to the Philippines with the landing of the U.S. 6th Army on Leyte. And in 2020, U.S. Department of Justice sues Google for illegal monopoly over search and search advertising. Those are your headlines for today, Thursday, October 20th, You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Right on, right on. And what we said, the latest or the breaking news is that they're sanctioning Iran. The the sanctions on Iran are are weird. The EU has no proof that those drones came from Iran. None. I mean, Iran has said they weren't. Russia has said they weren't. Well, but I'm saying, but why does... Why? Like, what is the issue? And and we probably and we've talked about it, but just to get some clarity, what is the issue of Russia? If if they did, yeah, what's the issue? Like, what, there shouldn't be one. I mean, for God's sake, considering who is how we supply military to Ukraine, all of those countries. other European nations are supplying weapons to Ukraine. Think about that. Yeah. And they're like, how dare? This is what I learned about power politics when I was younger, and I was like, this makes no sense to me. And as I got older, it makes perfect sense. The power structure sets the rules of the road. Doesn't have to be right. Doesn't have to be moral. Power structure sets it. So if I have power to sanction you for doing something, I do it. Why? Not because I'm correct in doing it. I do it because I don't want you doing X or Y. And if I have the power to do it, I express the power to do it. If Iran had the power to sanction in the U.S. for sanction for sending weapons, they would do it. It's just, it's not about right or wrong. There is no such thing as international law or international order. They may say those, like, oh, we have a rules-based order of the road. No, what you will find over and over again, even from these people who call themselves, we're capitalists, we're capitalists. And you see it there more than anywhere else. It's like, well, we believe that the rules should be set and everything else. So what happens? The moment that you are at a disadvantage, those rules change. So we would say, well, Ukraine is an independent state. They should be able to do what they want. You go to the Solomon Islands, not so much. How dare you? Try to claim that you're an independent nation and you can make agreements with China. That's, I swear to God, that's the way it is. International order is only if you have the power to set a rule here or there, and it's that. You're going to have your media organizations that say you're right in whatever you're doing. I mean, look at the Ukraine thing. They always talk about rules-based order. They knocked over that government and the media cheered. I mean, even when Trump got in and they fired weapons at Syria, Trump didn't have any evidence that Syria used chemical weapons. It was just reported that way. His response, got to fire a weapon. We don't care, which is true. We don't care. Got to fire a missile. And Brian Williams, oh, the light of this missile. What did he say? The light of this missile, something. He was basically touching himself on TV with missiles being fired and killing people. Go back and look at it. The light of the missile, light my eyes as I watch. He started quoting poetry as a missile was being fired. The weirdest thing in the world. Nobody asked the question. And this is journalist Brian Williams. This is journalist (laughs) Brian Williams. I got fired for lying. This is the same. It's like you are cheering somebody dying. And nobody asked the question, should the president do this? Should the president have the power to do this? Syria is not related to us. And they're using this nonsense with Iraq 
for a completely different country, and the media doesn't care. That's the justification. Yeah. yeah. They don't think about it. They don't ask, does the president have the power to do this? Is this within the got, got, um, concept of law that the president is firing this missile off? And like we were talking to the guy the other day where they were like, we have— the Congress has basically given up all obligation to ensure that the president of to declare war. And as, and as much as people may complain or get into office complaining about no more wars, no more— um, But they don't know, do that anymore. Who complains about that? Well, the problem is, is that they continue to vote for the, the authorizations and funding yes. that allow this. Yes. So it's not as if they get in there and say, well, you know, the, what we didn't like about the Patriot Act and mm-hmm. other things, let's rescind— Oh, they don't do that. They don't, they don't do—they talk about it. Yeah. But they never do it. Yeah. They want the power to be able to launch military strikes whenever they want to. And it's the weirdest thing in the world. I mean, you would think that somebody would say, well, wait a minute. Does the president have the authority to do this? I mean, think about it. Like, it's not pertaining to the U.S. The U.S. wasn't attacked. It wasn't like a U.S. state actor or friend of the United States. Was it, wasn't like, yeah. it wasn't like North Korea attacked Tokyo. and was like, oh, yeah, we got to protect Tokyo. It wasn't that. This is in a completely different country where we have nothing to do with, and we just fire missiles off. I mean, there's something dramatic and problematic about that. And, and the, author- the authorities are blanket authorities that, yes. ex- that extend into perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Like, it, they never end. Even the— but I, No this, president the, wants to give a power. That's no president wants to give a power. But whether you agree or disagree with Biden's student loan cancellation, the fact that it was used— the, the the authority that they use in order to actually implement or sign the executive order was based on post-9-11 emergency. Yeah. Have to go and look it up. But it was based on nine, an, an authority that they gave after 9-11. Right. That's what he's using as an authority because it's like a national— it, it wasn't the Patriot Act. I have to go and look it up. But it's a, like it's a literally post-9-11 authority that he used— to grant, to sign this executive order, yep. which is why I believe the Supreme Court may come back and actually shoot it down. Well, well, whether whether they shoot it down or not, the next president, a Republican president, because an executive order, yeah. they can just shut it down. But these type of authorities, it's, it's, they're blanket and they exist forever. Yeah. Look, I get the power of politics. If I need to get something accomplished, what's stopping me? What, my morality? Yeah. My ethics? Mm-hmm. And it's like you put those morality and ethics up against real world things that you want to accomplish. Those ethics take a back seat. The Heroes Act. That's what it is. Heroes Act. The Her- Her- so the Heroes. authority that they use for canceling the debt was the Heroes Act. And I think. Oh, that you mean for COVID? The COVID stuff. The 2013. But they didn't need that. Right. They had the education department. I mean, Trump was using, it was some um, power given to him by the education department. I need to look it up and find it to get the specific language. And Elizabeth Warren kept saying, Sanders kept saying, use the same power to get rid of student loan debt. You could do it with a flick of a pen, basically. You're the president of the United States, you could do it. I have no idea why Biden is using this particular provision as opposed to something else. Because he knows that it's on shaky ground. And that's like, the worst part of it, right? Like he knows it. That's the worst part. This gets to the little Mike Frost, uh, Mark Frost thing, where he was talking about how... Um, the previous presidents that were Democrats used to look out for either the middle class or the poor. Mm-hmm. And it seems that that is no longer an issue or a mainstay of the Democratic Party itself, which is why I think they're going to take it in the teeth. And maybe on some level, they should. Wait, maybe they so should. So you're saying you're claiming that this is intentionality versus incompetence. On which part? Meaning Biden. Yes. And the student loan stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. I think Biden knows this was the 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 easiest thing that he could do because when you have a party that's saying do more, do more, do more, ten thousand dollars, ten thousand versus twenty thousand versus thirty thousand. Yeah. Why did you choose on ten thousand? Yeah. And this is despite Joe Biden, which is such such the irony of it. If you go back and look at his plan 
on what he called the Lift Every Voice plan that was supposed to be the black plan, there's a whole lot of stuff in there about student loan cancellation. So the fact that we got to 10, that was the theater for the campaign. Yeah. He knew that he wasn't, wasn't going to back it up. That stuff. Same so, thing with pot. Same thing with pot. Same thing. Go big. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Malik Abdul, Reese Everson. Back in the morning with the monologue. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station at Washington, D.C. And I want to have a conversation about organized around media. While the U.S., while the U.K. and Europe is taking a massive, massive hit. I was reading reports this morning. I'm coming out Financial Times with some of the other reporting um, publications about the situation that Europe is in. It is dire. There's no magical door. There's no way out. Qatar has basically told them. You guys are screwed next year. And I suppose that's something they already knew. They didn't necessarily take any kind of measures in order to deal with the gas thing before deciding on an economic war. And so they're dealing with the consequences of their actions and their failings. I want to talk for the U.S. about a moment. Oftentimes, I feel in this country that we are a man or person falling off of a bridge or a cliff at remarkable, fantastic speeds with the ground exceeding and coming to us very quickly with us not paying attention to the fact that the ground is coming to us at a fantastic speed and believing with hubris, self-gratification, um, or let's say a massive um, self-amazement, meaning um, this kind of remarkable idea of yourself, and not paying attention to the fact that we're moving at 9.8 meters per second squared headed to hardcore ground that in no way is going to budge or give way when we slam into that ground. And we're not paying attention to it, nor are the edifices of our particular environment giving us a heads up that we are headed toward ground. If anything, it's triumphalism, despite the fact that there are all sorts of problems giving us a heads up that, hey, we're falling towards the ground. Even the notion of being $31 trillion in debt and not having, what, good bridges, not having good roads, not having high-speed rail, not having education or healthcare. All of those things are basically off the table and not even up for discussion, even the $10,000 discussion that we were having here. Those are things that in other countries, let's say in Europe, for example, are just understood. And they're understood because you realize that as you're growing a person, as kids are coming into society, those kids are growing up, those kids are getting old, those kids are dying, et cetera, that you don't necessarily want that person going from the cradle to the grave in, in difficulty perpetuity just because your society deems that way. Do you care about human beings or not? And oftentimes I find that question, especially in the United States, to be a no. People are drinking lead water or people are drinking water with cancer-causing chemicals. Is that a major priority? Of course it's not. The major priority in this case is Ukraine. Meaning, while we have all of these things that we need to deal with in the public itself, we are focusing on things that are external to the country. It's China. It's Russia. It's Iran. All of these countries are out to get us and all of these countries are out to cause us harm. Missing the fact that we're out to cause them harm first, meaning we've overthrown the government of Ukraine of, of Iran already. The government that's in there now that we hate so much was a government that overthrew the government that we put in. Or from the standpoint of China and Russia, we decided to have these economic wars. We decided once the Soviet Union failed to expand NATO and everything else, meaning instead of focusing on the things and the real world problems associated with our particular society, instead of growing our society where we're investing in human beings and making sure those people are the best people that they could possibly be, which would, again, undercut crime, undercut this issue of, let's say, malaise in the society itself. We don't do that. We focus 
on external issues, and we assume, or at the very least pretend, that those external issues are directly related to the problems that we are basically facing, as opposed to the problems that we're basically fakely being caused by us. When I watch the media broadcasts, I've been binge-watching a lot of the old war stuff and reading some of my old books. And one of the interesting things in the German military was that Goebbels, especially during Operation Daphne, let's say the attack on Moscow, continuously said, the war is almost over, the war is almost over. And after a while, after saying the war is pretty much over, the war is pretty much over, and you found that their forces got stopped in Moscow or near Moscow and then massive counterattack by the Red Army at that point, that Goebbels and the German, let's say, high command realized the public is no longer believing what we're putting out, meaning the things that they were basically saying, the public has started listening to British and other airwaves to get an idea of what was actually taking place on the war front. The news media, let's say the German news media, has basically lost all credibility. When you look at what's taking place here in the United States, and even before this war basically started, what you found was that the credibility of U.S. media had basically taken a massive, massive hit. Go and look at it now. The numbers are utterly appalling. If I'm not mistaken, it's like 20%, if not less, of the public basically believes what the mainstream media is putting out, whether that's media on television or, for that matter, media in the press. We take issue with Alex Jones and other people like Alex Jones that puts out basic nonsense. But why on earth is the public going to somebody like Alex Jones to get an understanding of the world? And is that a direct relation to the loss of credibility? by mainstream media. And the moment that you say, okay, well, why is mainstream media losing credibility? You have one job, and that job is to give the public an honest and contextual view of the world. If you're indeed living in a democracy, how on earth are the people in that particular democracy understanding the world in a way where they can make choices and decisions, and for that matter, that are in their best interest, if they don't necessarily fully and entirely understand what their world is. I'm saying that you have failed miserably, talking about mainstream media, and your philosophical, ethical responsibility to the American public to give them a view of the world where they can come to a decision on that is rational. And it's not just rational, that is in their best interests and in the best interests of their country. Those things are intrinsically linked to one another. And so what you get is that the public looks around at the world and it makes zero sense. Because what you're telling them is not exactly what is taking place on the ground. If you come out of mainstream media, oh, the, the Russian forces are stalled. Russia is running out of missiles. Oh, Russia, Vladimir Putin is just walking around in the room. He's by himself. The, the military of, the, of the Russia is not paying attention to Putin. If you say that, and then they take 20% of territory in Ukraine, and then you have to write a report that Ukrainian forces are eating potatoes every other day and getting decimated 10 to 1 by artillery, then what is the public to think? about you and the reporting that you're doing. You get us wrong here. Oftentimes they say, oh, these guys are a propaganda outlet. Look, I'll tell you this. My job on this network is to be the integrity, no more, no less. That is how I define my capability and my job to be. Whatever other shows, whatever the larger intent is secondary to the point. My job is to give an honest, contextual view of the world. You may not like it. It may run contrary to what you're basically saying, but I am judged on whether or not what I'm saying is basically true or false. I may not get it right all the time because after all, regardless of my idea of myself, I'm just an individual and a person, but all things being equal, sitting perched at the edge of the world, looking at the things that are taking place, I try to say, this is what's happening. These guys are either lying. These guys are telling the truth. And I don't necessarily care about the particular sides. The problem is that mainstream media in this country has decided that their quote-unquote patriotic duty matters more 
than just their job of giving you a contextual view of the world. That is fantastically deplorable. Understand, whether they define in their heads that is their patriotic duty to push propaganda for the United States government. It's one thing for the government to do it. I accept the government do it. All governments do it. All governments lie on some level. I mean, after all, like I said, you either have your morality or ethics being the thing that prevents you from doing those things when you have the power to do those things. And oftentimes, ethics or philosophical responsibility or morality take a back seat, especially if you're running the government and you have objectives and physical matter reality that you want to accomplish. Fair enough. I accept that. That is something that all governments do. It is a secondary thing, though, for the media in a country that claims itself as independent. To listen to something, Ukrainian government says this, knowing for the matter of fact, Ukrainian government is a lie, is in a war, and they're going to lie through their teeth for issues of morale and everything else. But they carried that here as if it was completely true. Snake Allen, it's nonsense. Go to Kiev. Nonsense. The idea that Russia is going to bomb its own pipeline despite having full control over whether anything comes out of that pipeline is nonsense. And yet, this is something breathlessly over and over again repeated in this media. None of it was true. None of it didn't even make sense. Oh, Russia bombs the Azov Battalion while they're already captured in a prison camp, killing or potentially killing their own forces because why? They're just crazy and just want to kill Nazis. Besides the fact, they could have taken those guys out back and put a bullet in them. Didn't have to bomb their own self. I'm saying that the loss of credibility in mainstream media in this country is a direct result of mainstream media in and of itself. And this idea of patriotic duty is better served by giving the public an honest contextual view. For God's sake, you have these people talking about Armageddon. Armageddon. Your president is screaming Armageddon. You have 50% of the public saying the president is pushing us closer into a nuclear war. You don't think that it behooves you to tell the truth to the public, to give them an idea of whether or not they should be engaged in this nonsense, especially if the majority believes we are getting to the point of Armageddon. I'm saying that the responsibility meter supersedes this idea of their individual notion of patriotic duty, and patriotic duty is best served by telling the truth. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. We're coming back with the one and only Mark Sloboda. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in a D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 102.9 and 105.5 FM. If you, I'm sorry, at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Melise and Reese are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We'll try to get to you at 845 or 945. But we're joined by the one and only Mark Sloboda. He's a national and international relations and security analyst. Mark, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? Jamaro, Reese, Malik. Thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Fault Lines. Mark, it's always an honor and a pleasure to have you, my man. <laughs> Mark, General Savikin, I want to get into him for a moment before we get into the other issues associated, um, that are taking place right now. What is your take of him? He is the new Russian general that's taking control, and he's basically giving this kind of speech and everything else. What is your take of him? I'm just curious. 
Yeah, I mean, he is seen in Russia as the Kremlin deciding that it is serious uh, about the war, that it that it recognizes that it is going to need more than the self-limited special military operation that it started out this conflict with because of the, the escalation by NATO, the arms, the funding, the flood, um, as, as well as Kiev's uh, refusal uh, to uh, accept uh, diplomacy uh, for terms. Uh, he previously uh, served as, as a commander in um, uh, Syria, uh, Syrian conflict, where he um, w- gained the affectionate nickname General Armageddon from his <laughs> colleagues. Um, for his tendency to like the use of aviation to settle problems and his his maverick thinking outside the box solutions, which caused his colleagues no end of problems in in war games against him. Um, He had he was uh, previously uh, commander of the Southern Theater uh, in the Russian intervention in Ukraine, which is arguably has been the most success with Kherson and Zaporozhia um, uh, falling uh, uh, almost without any fighting in the very first days of the conflict um, and then and then holding it statically since then. Uh, but he's now been placed over everyone else as, as head of the entire uh, still called special military operation in Ukraine. And I I think we've very quickly uh, seen that uh, the Kremlin has supported his his change of the rules of engagement, um, uh, particularly going after Kiev regime infrastructure. And also, I think he's a bit of a a straight shooter. He's laconic, a man of very few words, and when he does speak, it's usually important. Uh, and in the uh, brief statements he made and his, his questions to the press, um, he uh, you know, was quite frank that the situation right now uh, in Kherson is serious. Uh, the, he used the word tense because of the large agglomeration of Kiev regime forces uh, and the difficulty that they might face defending the city if the Kiev regime forces uh, try to destroy the Kohovka uh, uh, reservoir uh, dam uh, and hydroelectric plant, which would flood uh, the whole theater, uh, including uh, uh, parts of Harrison city, making resupply difficult, making it uh, very difficult to move out um, uh, civilians uh, from the conflict zone and and causing no no small end of civilian deaths, of course, due to the flooding in the process. He was he was very honest, I think, about that. That it's a tense situation, and and the, the, that the Russia the military will have to play it by ear as facts occur on the ground. Is this <clears throat> the way of let's say the Russian government trying to put up a trial balloon? In the case, Herzog is basically lost. Is that what's going on? Meaning, is that why he came out to speak and probably, I guess, prep the public? Because, look, the situation is difficult. We're doing our best to basically maintain and hold the territory. We're getting people out just in case they won't, they won't be in a field of fire. But all things being equal, it's uncertainty around whether or not they can hold the city with the forces they have at their disposal. Is that what's going on? Is that why he came out to give the speech? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if it's so much as a trial balloon as explaining why uh, the evacuations are taking place. And yeah. And 
Russia has basically offered anyone in Kherson, uh, uh, Kherson apartments anywhere in Russia, anywhere you want to go, uh, anywhere, you know, you, you, uh, you know, uh, simply, uh, come to us and say, you want out of this craziness right now, and we will relocate you at our expense, uh, in, in order to, you know, I mean, considering that, you know, there ultimately, yeah, yeah. Ultimately there is a root problem, uh, that they didn't have enough people in the theater, uh, to properly defend it now. I mean, They've called up the reserves and everything, but it's going to take a while to retrain them and get them in the theater. And then declaring, you know, uh, with the referendums, giving the people the choice to join Russia. Uh, and then and then almost immediately after that being, uh, yeah, but we can't actually defend this territory right now. Uh, and uh, we might have to temporarily move you out of here. That's that's a uh, humiliating. This statement, I love this statement, quote, the enemy is a criminal regime that pushes Ukrainian citizens towards death. We are one with the people of Ukraine and only wish for Ukraine to be a state independent from the West and NATO and friendly towards Russia, unquote. This is what General Armageddon or Savikin, I love, <laughs> I love that term, General Armageddon, um, or Savikin said. I mean, this is kind of, I guess this gives a great indication of the way Russia is basically looking at this, that you have a regime that overthrew the government. And that regime has basically pushed his people into war. And that you have a large number of people who are basically thrown into the firing pits, not because they necessarily want to be there, meaning you have many Ukrainians who aren't neo-Nazis. And yet the government itself is basically conscripting these guys. Some of these guys were on a dance floor um, at one point in a nightclub, and they got dragged out and thrown into the battlefield. That's basically how Russia is looking at this, that an, a, an, a regime that took power with force is now pushing his people into war. Yeah, uh, the Russian president said, uh, you know, at the start of the conflict, exactly this, uh, you know, that uh, we are one people that, that we're not at war with the Ukrainian people. We're not at war with Ukraine. Uh, our special military operation is directed against the regime that seized power in Ukraine in 2014. Um, and it should be noted that, I mean, it's not just General Sorovikin or Putin that said that Ukrainians or Russians are are one people, that there's essentially no difference. Uh, you know who else said that? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I would, <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure who. Volodymyr Zelensky, when he was running for office before he became president of the Kiev regime. Now he how completely things, disavows it. And how says things the have changed. But I mean, he was on TV. I mean, you know, I mean, he made most of his money, you know, his comedy company in Russia. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, uh, and, and now some of his films can't be shown in their original form in the Ukraine that uh, he has inherited and, and rules uh, because they're in Russian. Scrubbed them out. They have to be redubbed in Ukrainian or or I don't know, you know, uh, whatever you want to call Bandarstan these days yeah. where the president's own movies can't be shown in the language oh, they were that's originally so filmed. Sad. That's so sad. I want to get into the, um, I'm sorry, the basically Putin called for martial law in the various areas, the four regions that are now Russian territory. Now, why? What was the necessity for this? What is the reason that Putin had to do this? And what is his expectations associated with, meaning, why did he do it? And what are going to be the effects of him doing it? The expectation, anyway. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, first of all, I mean, Harrison and Zaporozhia were already under martial law uh, for months now from, from the local government. So, this is basically just giving a reason for now under Russian legal jurisdiction why they are. Uh, the Donbass has been under martial law since 2014. Uh, 
um, uh, since the conflict there began. And it should be said that that uh, all of Ukraine uh, is under martial law and has been since uh, February. And they had also declared the entire, you know, the east of Ukraine to be under martial law since 2014 as well. So, I mean, this is it's a war zone. Right. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, basically just legalistically applying what was already under place under Russian law. But I think that there is an impetus because of the need uh, for civilian evacuations uh, from Kherson. And I think it needs to be said that Russian forces are going to try to defend the city, which means urban combat. Uh, so first, they're moving uh, the uh, civilians first over to the other side of the Dnieper. Uh, they have to use pontoons and ferry br- uh, uh, fer- pontoon bridges and ferries for a lot of this because the Kiev regime keeps uh, shelling the bridges uh, and they're repairing them. But, you know, it, 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 they, it, it's, it's a constant back and forth. Uh, and, and that is not easy. They can only evacuate some 8,000 people a day. Right. Um, and there's some a population of 200,000. So first, they're trying to get them onto the far side of the Dnieper River. And then, you know, uh, for those uh, who would like to be relocated elsewhere in Russia from there. But they are doing the responsible thing, according to the rules of war. They're going to defend the city. So they're moving the civilian population out. Now, contrast this with what the Kiev regime has done. And not my word for it, take Amnesty International, who said that they were turning every building, every school, every hospital into a firing point and not even evacuating the civilians, using them as human shields. That's a big difference because that is a war crime. Thank you, Mark. This is Reese. Good morning. Um, So that's kind of my question. If the whole point of attacking the cities is because they know that, you know, this is... civilian population is there and that's going to go over, you know, above, over and above as, you know, just, oh my God, we attacked a city full of people. If you move the people out of the city, aren't they just going to attack the other places where the people have been relocated to? I mean, I'm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the goal is not to kill the people. If the people are at least not all of the people, right. Uh, even for the Kiev regime. Now, they want to kill everyone whom they view as a collaborator and so forth, and they've made that very clear with their, their own commanders saying that, you know, uh, in, in uh, Harakov, saying we're hunting them down and killing them like pigs. And that was in the, the British press. Um, uh, of course, the Western media doesn't want to talk about that. But the goal is to take the city because of the strategic importance. This city straddles both sides of the Dnieper. It's the only city that Russia holds that does that. And if Russia has intentions later down the conflicts, like say sometime next year, of moving forward west towards Nikolaev and Odessa, uh, they really need to hold this position uh, because it will be much harder to take the city back than it was when to originally get it because there was essentially no fighting and lots of uh, officials and people in Harrison just changed sides, right? Uh, if they have to fight their way across that, it will be much more difficult. Uh, so, I mean, there is a strategic importance to cities and in particular to this city because of its geographical location. Hey, Mark, thanks for joining us. It's Malik. Um, 
thanks for adding some clarity to the um, what we are hearing about the martial law. It seems like that's a little much less there there than what the media has covered, at least here in the states. But I wanted to get your thoughts on this, and obviously we we are critical of Western media, and it's justified. But I was reading the Wall Street Journal um, covering the the war drills. So, and I want to read something to you. This is the Wall Street Journal. The headline: NATO and Russia run nuclear war drills amid tensions over Ukraine. Annual exercises proceed despite Putin's nuclear threats as alliances stresses need for training to reinforce deterrent. Now, when you go click through, of course, you have to go through several articles because several articles quote Putin's nuclear threat. I want to read the statement that they're referring to. Russia will use all the instruments at its disposal to counter a threat against its territorial integrity. This is not a bluff. To me, that sounds like the United States and every other country saying we will do everything at our disposal to protect the homeland. Where is the nuclear threat in what Putin said? Yeah, uh, it's a good question, and and thanks for reading that because I was quick googling it up to to get exactly those words out. And you're right, um, the Russian president said nothing of the sort. This is a bit of distortion uh, uh, and disinfo that has completely dominated the Western headlines. Uh, uh, and a big part of that is just demonization of Russia, right? Because uh, the Russian president is an evil madman, and he's going to use nuclear weapons because because he's Putin and because it's Russia and what else would they do? So, I mean, they've been running with this for two weeks now. I even did a couple pieces of this on my own channel. Um, and the Russian president said nothing of the sort. He said he would defend his country and his people by any means at his disposal. You're right. And that's exactly what the U S or any other country would say. How many times have you heard the U S say, even offensively, all options are on the table, yes. right? Is, is that a nuclear threat? Because, no. I mean, that, that is extending uh, the logic, you know, of, of this even here. And what's more, in that speech where Putin said that, he directly in the paragraph before that and in the paragraph right after, the sentence right before and after, said that in the context that he had received threats by West high-ranking Western politicians to use nuclear weapons on Russian forces in Ukraine. So he was warning back that he will defend his country by, uh, you know, uh, whatever means he has, and he's not bluffing. Before and after, he referred to it as nuclear blackmail. Now the West has taken up that exact term, and they're flipping it around and using it about him, saying that he would defend Russia if there was a nuclear strike against Russian forces. It's, it's, it's black and white. It's it's, you know, a day and night. It's flipping. It's projecting of exactly what they have been doing. And let's face it, with all the narrative frame building they're doing, particularly in the context of tactical nuclear weapons, what the Pentagon was developing and deploying for the last decade, they wanted more usable nuclear weapons. I think there's a real, a real possibility here. I think the narrative frame building has another purpose. And, and that is a potential false flag that would justify, uh, you know, blamed on Russia, uh, letting off a tack nuke or a dirty bomb or something of the sort. And we've heard from 
Kiev regime, we've heard from, sorry, from Western officials, from the foreign minister of Poland, we've heard from General Petraeus and others saying that if Russia uses a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, then we will attack Russia and annihilate Russian forces yeah, in it, Ukraine. It looks like they're trying. That, that sounds like a pretext. That's a red line. That's like what they did with chemical weapons in Syria. And I'm not saying it's going to happen or that it's going to happen tomorrow. But when you're doing these things, you you build a framework narratively for going to that extreme. And I think it's very possible we could see U.S. or Polish forces move into Western Ukraine if Kiev if they do something like that. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I mean, because otherwise it doesn't entirely make sense. It's like an expeditionary force was able to take 20% of the Ukraine territory that is now, at this point, Russian territory. And now Russia has to go to nukes for some weird reason that I have no idea why. Right, right, no after, right after they expanded that expeditionary force by four times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it makes no sense. It zero makes zero sense. And, you know, considering We've already used the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq thing as a pretext. Then you can't necessarily look at this How and say— How many times? Well, I mean, I guess my thing is, the Syrian chemical weapons, the weapons of mass destruction, those were basically frameworks that allowed military action in order to justify to the local populations. And I get the feeling that if the entirety of Ukraine falls, that they may do something like that in order to preserve a little, let's say, balkanized region— um, that they didn't necessarily want it to be take. So yeah, Mark, that is a major concern um, of mine also because I was thinking the same thing as they kept talking, this nuclear talk, Armageddon and all this other nonsense. Um, I want to get to the weather for a moment and how that affects the terrain. Um, back in the old war, the second war, you had, rap, what do you call it, rapimista, something to that effect. And this was an issue that um, Napoleon had. This was an issue the German military had. That basically the weather turns the ground into this kind of muddy, I don't know what you want to call it, almost like quicksand. Um, it was causing issues with many of the military, especially, you know, Germany at the time, because most of those people were basically on foot walking hundreds of, of or thousands of kilometers when they were going from point A to point B. Ukraine is a massive amount of territory. How, what is the weather and what effect is that having on the troops that are basically there on the ground, whether it's the Russians or, for that matter, the Ukrainian troops? Yeah, I mean, it, it is further. it's not exactly quicksand, but the autumns and the springs tend to be deliver a lot of rain and makes the ground very muddy. And I hate to tell you that tanks and, and uh, infantry fighting vehicles, they're, they're not only fighting on roads and, and, and city combat. They, they, you know, that's the whole purpose of them is to go across territory. And we've already seen uh, pictures uh, coming out of the latest, the beginning of, these, of this latest push in Kherson of Kiev regime tanks and vehicles just stuck in the mud uh, charging across open step and and being just obliterated by Russian artillery and aviation as a result of this. So, yeah, I mean, the, the weather is not completely deterministic, but it is a factor and it's it's a significant factor. Um, and, um, you know, it's playing out that way right now, whereas, say, by mid to late December, the ground will be frozen. And that is regarded as good terrain to move across. And I think that as that Kiev regime uh, counteroffensives lose steam here, reach their peak and then lose steam in the next couple of weeks, their window is closing. And then you're going to see with, with all the, the new uh, forces having been retrained, the ground freezing, you're going to see some serious winter offensives uh, coming from Russia because – 
winter doesn't bother. I mean, Russia does offensives in the winter. Um, it's 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 preferred, and you're. I think you're uh, almost certainly going to see that. Um, and and that is the weather, you know, having another effect. Sergey Lavrov made the point of saying Russia's presence in Western countries doesn't entirely make sense. Um, quote unquote, doesn't entirely make sense. What does this mean in practice? I mean, this is basically a severing of ties with um, West with Western nations. And what does this mean? I guess going forward for the next several years. Yeah, what what Lavrov is saying, particularly in the wake of the destruction of Nord Stream One and and you know the 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 one pipeline of Nord Stream Two, that it's obvious that the European states are just complete vassals. They're client states. I mean, the U.S. Almost certainly it was them blew up the Nord Stream pipelines, providing, you know, uh, energy to Germany. And they just sat there like like uh, shell shocked Stockholm uh, syndrome victims and took it and, and didn't even say dare say a word to the contrary. Didn't even complain. And Russia's re- yeah, Russia's response is that, yeah, I mean, there's no reason talking to you, just like they've said earlier about Kiev. If we want to talk to someone, it's clear that all the decisions are made in Washington that it's pointless. And I mean, there's also the factor that uh, uh, their embassies in Europe have have been harassed. Uh, the diplomats, uh, I mean, the embassies have been attacked. The diplomats have been harassed, uh, both officially in terms of, of uh, you know, getting the, the visas and the paperwork needed, uh, but also by, you know, uh, what are essentially mobs that are given the green light uh, by the governments there. Uh, so um, they're, they're saying we, we are seriously consider just reducing our diplomatic presence in Europe as, as unnecessary. Um, I want to go to the G20 for a moment. Um, Biden made this kind of off comment saying if Putin wanted to talk about Griner, that he may have the conversation. And for all intents and purposes, when you think about that, it's like, okay, Biden can't say, yes, I'm going to have a conversation with Putin like he did back, um, I think it was last year, a year or two. Um, but the fact that he's willing to talk about Griner, I get this impression that he is, of course, going to be willing to talk about other things. This is kind of political speak, right? I'm not going to say to Putin, but if he wants to talk about Griner, okay. And the belief that the only thing they're going to be in that room talking about Griner is nonsense. Um, is that conversation going to take place? I guess I, I'm extremely curious about that. And the idea that Zelensky is also supposed to be there, what does that mean? Like, what is your expectations coming out of Bali? Yeah, I mean, there's not even a firm guarantee that Putin is going to go to that. I don't think that has actually been decided yet. Uh, I mean, he, he may attend virtually. Uh, I, I think that you'll see the Russian and Chinese leader make a joint decision on that uh, somewhat closer to the date, whether they're actually going to physically go or not. Uh, but I, I honestly, I cannot see a meeting, a meeting between Biden and Putin taking place. I mean, and then you know, even more, like you said, the ridiculousness that about of all things that they would <laughs> Griner, talk, talk yeah. about now, some cannabis vaping basketball star. Right. That's the most important thing for them to to, to talk about. Right. Um, uh, obviously, I mean, maybe that plays well in Peoria. I mean, that 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 kind of focus on this. But I find it just absolutely a sign of, of either just absurdity or senility. Take your pick. I, I don't I don't know which one it is <laughs> to be honest, and I, it puts me in mind of the meeting with um with with Clinton and um Loretta Lynch. It's like oh we just talk about our grandkids. Nobody <laughs> believes that they were just talking about their grandkids, right? It's like you're going to lock my wife up. What, what the hell are you doing? Um, last point here. The, it, from, Ukraine seems to be pulling its forces from various places in order to come up with these kind of attacks. I mean, what is your expectation for this? I mean, it seems 
oftentimes it seems like this is the last push and the last push for political reasons, not necessarily for militaristic reasons. I mean, they should have came to some level of negotiation after Kharkov and they didn't necessarily do it. But, but the belief is that the West is pushing the Ukrainian government to take these offensives in order for, I don't know, I guess propagandistic reasons in order to show, see, we can still do X and Y. How long do you think these, for one, offensives are going to last? But two, haven't they weakened other areas? And uh, is the Russian military making movements on other areas of the battlefield? I guess I'm trying to get an idea of what is taking place on the ground. What are the movements that the Ukrainian military are currently making? And what are the movements that the Russian military are currently making? And that'll be the last question. We have about two minutes left. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I, first of all, I don't think that, I mean, the West may be giving them a green light and pushing them on, but I, I, I think that there is no uh, uh, sentiment within the Kiev regime uh, for negotiated terms at this point. Um, so, so I think that this is an, an Arden forest type last ditch offensive trying to force uh, a political settlement because it's impossible for them to win on the battlefield, but uh, they haven't really accomplished what they wanted to. They're running out of steam. All of the Western weapons that uh, they are using and, and are being ground up uh, very at a, to a very high degree, they can't replace. Uh, because the West is simply running out of artillery shells, out of uh, artillery pieces, everything they need to send them, it's gone. Um, so uh, this is uh, going to run out of steam in the next month. Right now, they're making a big, huge push on Harrison. They've got some 60,000 troops, but we haven't seen any move movement in about four d days now that hasn't been immediately smacked down. That may change. Uh, it may just be probing attacks, uh, uh, recon in force so far. Uh, right now, Russia is actually on the offensive in Zaporozhye and uh, uh, northern Lugansk back towards Kharkov, some small. And of course, they're on the offensive back towards Bakhmut. So right now, it, it really seems that it's hair sun or nothing. It's this last ditch effort. We're going to have to close it here. The Voice, you're listening to is Mark Sloboda, international relations and security analyst. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Sloboda one and his new YouTube channel at RealPolitik with Mark Sloboda. Definitely check that out. Find him on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gramsci. Fault Lines, Radio Sputnik, Reese, Malik, Jamal, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We'll try to take your calls at 845 or 945 this morning. Um, always love talking to Mark. Always love talking to him. He gives this amazing explanation of what is going on. He lives in Moscow, so he often could give you this kind of conversation about what is taking place on the ground in Russia and give you this kind of military analysis of what's taking place on the ground. Not to mention that, a larger geopolitical framework and framing of how this stuff basically works. I found him to be extremely informative um, over the last several years. We have a lot of good marks. There's a Mark Frost, Frost Mark Sloboda. We have all of them. We're going to get another Mark somewhere along the way. Um, all of these Mark names. But look, let's get into headlines. Domestic news. 
Slightly fewer than half of Americans have high confidence that votes will be counted accurately in the upcoming 2022 midterm elections. A new poll by the National Opinion Research Center and Associate Press showed on Wednesday. A total of 47% of Americans say they have a, they have a great deal or quite a bit of confidence. Another 24% say they have moderate or confidence. And 28% have either only a little confidence or none at all. Among Democrats, 74% say they have high confidence. On the Republican side, 25% say they have high confidence. 30, moderate, 45, little to no confidence at all, according to the poll. 52% of respondents say that only that the U.S. democracy is not working well. Only 9% said democracy is working extremely or very well. Those numbers are appalling. If those numbers are accurate, you have basically nearly half of your country not believing that the political process works. Now think about what that means. Your country is based on legitimacy and that legitimacy is conferred through the vote, meaning you have a large number of people that basically select this person or that person. And you may not like them. You may say that person sucks. You may say that person is horrible. That person is warmonger. That person um, is evil. Whatever you want to think of it, you still give them legitimacy because he basically won the vote tally. The majority of the people selected this individual. So fair enough. I mean, I like him. That guy's my president. I'm going with that. What happens though? When a majority or half of your country think that guy's not legitimate, how do you get the legitimacy back? That is a big issue. And when you have two political parties that basically have taken the political framing um, for political expedience, that that guy didn't get elected or that guy got taken by the Russian, um, by Vladimir Putin, carried on his back and carried across the finish line, you undermine, destroy even this idea of credibility of U.S. elections. And look, you could go to other countries and see what that looks like. That is not something that you want to have here. And the idea that they were doing that for political expedience as opposed to looking out for the best interest of the country is utterly and completely deplorable. And we are facing the consequence of it now. If that poll gets worse, will you get the majority of the country saying that guy is not legitimate either because it's for their own political best interests or for that matter, they just don't necessarily believe it because they believe the things that people were putting out. Your country is going to have a fantastic loss of legitimacy of their elected leaders, and you are going to pay the consequences as a result. Let's keep going. What they did with the Trump stuff, or what um, Trump did after he got elected, basically, like, these elections are the fraud, fraud, massive amounts of fraud. Both of those were despicable. Honest to God, both were despicable. Let's keep going. Police in Central Florida arrested a man on Sunday who they said intended to create an active shooter situation with officers and to, quote, start a war, unquote. The Putnam County Sheriff's Office said that Glenn Ressler, 42, of Interlashen, Florida, was angry at the police for receiving his driver's license during a recent traffic stop because it had already been suspended. The Sheriff's Office said that they sent the officer to investigate Ressler's home early Sunday after receiving word about his plans to retaliate for the seizure of his license. He, as an individual, was going to start a war over his suspended license. Great. Former U.S. President Donald Trump was deposed on Wednesday for a civil lawsuit accusing him of defaming E. Jean Carroll in response to her accusing the one-term commander-in-chief of rape. It is reported Carroll, who is now 78 years old, accused Trump of raping her in a dressing room in a Manhattan Bergdorf Goodman department store in 1990s after the pair met in a store. The accusations first appeared in 2019 New York Magazine article when Trump was still president. At the time, Trump defended himself saying Carroll, quote, wasn't even his type, unquote, an accuser being motivated by the political monetary reasons to make up the story. Carroll reported or responded by suing Trump in New York State Court for defamation. Wow. Well, what's her name? Tara Reid. Tara Reid was on the show and made the same accusations or similar accusations about Biden. It's 
fascinating how those things are taken differently. Former U.S. Vice President Mike Pence rejected in a speech at the Conservative Heritage Foundation the still widespread populist movement that his old boss Donald Trump continues to champion and lead. Quote, our movement cannot forsake the foundation commitment or foundational commitment we have to security, to limited government, and to life, unquote, Pence said in a speech on Wednesday. Quote, but neither can we allow the movement to be led astray by a siren song of unprincipled populism that is unmoored from our oldest traditions and most cherished values, unquote. Pence voiced no personal criticism of Trump and only referred to him by the name, quote, a man I deeply admire, unquote. But Pence made clear he had timed his remarks in anticipation of the Republican resurgence in the midterm congressional elections in November that he predicted will restore the country or the control of Congress to the Republican Party. Pence might be right on that. I mean, when you're looking at the polling and the polling is asking very basic question, you guys are in economic distress? Yes. Is your living situation getting worse? Yes. Do you believe that the U.S. was on the right track? No. Do you believe, or what are your main issues? Immigration and economics and inflation. And when you ask them what party backs that up, Republicans hit it on the head. Whether it is indeed, I don't buy it, but still, it's what they're talking about. When you go to Democrats, you get January 6th, women's rights, and something else that the public doesn't only much care about. If you're just looking at the polling, can't say Pence was wrong. Let's keep going. I mean, he might be wrong about the nonsense he is spewing. I have no idea what he means when he makes those flowery statements about a limited government and conservative values and all this stuff. But from the standpoint of the election and what the public believes that one party stands for versus the other, can't say he's wrong. In international news, Russian President Vladimir Putin has signed a decree on the introduction of a state of martial law in Kherson, Zaporozhye, Donetsk People's Republic, and Lugansk People's Republic. Quote, I have signed a decree on the introduction of state martial law in these four constituent entities of the Russian Federation. It would immediately be sent for approval to the Federation Council, Russia's upper house of parliament, and the state Duma will be informed of the decision, unquote, Putin said, speaking at a meeting at the Russian Security Council on Wednesday. The Federation Council is expected to convene later in the day to rubber stamp the decree. The text of the decree has been published on the Kremlin website and indicates that martial law was introduced on October 20th, 12 a.m., in the infected areas or on the affected areas. The decree is grounded in provisions of the Russian Constitution and the 2002 federal law, quote, on martial law, unquote. Let's keep going. The German embassy in Tehran has allegedly played a significant role in unrest in Iran and coordinated insurgents' actions in course of Western governments to foment the conflict in the Islamic Republic, the FARS news agency reported on Wednesday. According to the report, the German embassy has allegedly played a significant and effective role in the diplomatic pressure and international coordination to foment unrest in Iran. The embassy coordinated foreign governments and international organizations to increase pressure on the domestic situation in the Islamic Republic, Fars said. German diplomats have also allegedly held a series of meetings with employees in Western embassies in Tehran, during which they discussed ways to increase the unrest and further destabilize the situation in Iran, the report said. Color me not shocked. Color me not shocked. All parties in the Finnish parliament are in agreement about the necessity, quote-unquote, to build a fence around parts of the 1,300-kilometer land border between Finland and Russia, Prime Minister Sana Martin, SPD, or SDP, herself as an eager supporter of the idea, has said that after debates on an infrastructure project proposed by the Finnish border guard, Finnish government, Marin, said, will set aside funding for test sections of the fence in a supplement budget later this year and funding for the border project based on experiences from the tests section and supplementary budget next year. God, this is stupid. It was ridiculous when Trump was screaming about it, but at the very least, 
we did have people that were trying to get into the country where you could make some kind of argument for it. And all things being equal, the American public probably would have supported it. This is just performative. You guys are looking for ways to dis uh, um, dis decouple yourselves from Russia, even if those ways are basically symbolic of saying this is ridiculous. The issue of U.S. biolabs in Ukraine has once again received widespread international publicity. On October 18th, Belarus, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, China, Cuba, Nicaragua, Syria, and Russia called for invoking Article 6 in the Biological Weapons Convention because of U.S. military and biological activities in Ukraine. Article 6 of the Biological Weapons Convention allows state parties to lodge a complaint with the United Nations Security Council if they suspect a breach of treaty obligations by another state. In the event of such a development, the United States, as a state party to the convention, would be obliged to cooperate in any investigation that may be initiated by the UNSC. Chinese experts interviewed by Sputnik believe that if the U.S. has nothing to hide, it should provide a comprehensive explanation. I'll be waiting for that. I will be waiting for that explanation. I have no expectation that explanation is going to come. Inflation has jumped almost 10% across the Eurozone as European Union malls a price cap on Russian gas imports. Eurostat, the data center of EU's executive body for the European Commission, said prices in September were 9.9% higher than the same time last year across 19 countries that used the euro currency. That was a significant increase on the 9.1% Eurostat rate reported in August. 0.8% increase, what, within two months? Astonishing. I wonder how much have their pay going up in order to accommodate that 10% increase. UK Home Secretary Sella Braverman's resignation, Chief Whip, Wendy Morton's attempt to step down, and a Tory MP revolt over fracking have prompted new speculation among conservative lawmakers that under fire Prime Minister Liz Truss could be forced out of number 10, quote, within weeks or even days, unquote, according to the British news outlet. The outlet quoted an unnamed senior backbencher as saying, quote, this is the beginning of the end, unquote, for trust. According to the source, quote, she, the prime minister, would be gone by Christmas, if not before, unquote. The insider was echoed by former Brexit advisor David Frost, who wrote in an article in The Telegraph that the UK prime minister, quote, just can't stay in office, unquote. There are other articles on that one that I was reading that are just amazing. She is massively unlike, and the policies that she's been pushing are not going down well. They were trying to borrow hundreds, what is it, hundreds of billions in order to help people pay for their energy bills. And come to find out, they can't even do that, especially not for the long term. Which means that the UK, with their focus on getting Europe involved in this war, working with the US to get Europe involved in this war, has basically taken on domestic or geopolitical policy that is having domestic impact in a way that the government itself can't deal with. Meaning, you're not able to borrow all of that money for all of those years in order to help people pay for their heating bills, meaning those people are basically being left in the lurch. And they're being left in the lurch as a direct response of the geopolicy that you decided to take at the, at the extreme um, expense of your own populations. If that is not deplorable, I don't know what is. This day in history, in 1803, U.S. Senate ratifies the Louisiana Purchase. In 1917, U.S. suffragette Alice Paul begins a seven-month jail sentence for peacefully picketing in support of women's suffrage, basically the right to vote. Amendment at the White House in Washington, D.C. How dare you um, um, protest for the right to vote? I <laughs> love that. You're putting women in prison for having a temporary to get a vote. In 1944, this guy in prison. I'm sorry, this woman in prison. And, um, in 1944, U.S. forces under General Douglas MacArthur returns to the Philippines with the landing of the U.S. 6th Army in late. In 2020, U.S. Justice Department sues Google 
for illegally monopoly over search and search advertising. Those are your headlines. You're listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas and Maurice Everson and Lick Abdul. All right, got through the headlines, 8.15, great. Um, let's go to our guests. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. We'll be back in a moment with Elijah McDA. We're gonna have a conversation about what is taking place in Europe. And we're gonna get into the idea that they're sanctioning Iran. That is amazing. We supply weapons to all of these places. Iran and Russia says, it's not ours. And nevertheless, sanctions, nonetheless. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Reese Everson, Willie Abdul, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We will definitely... Give you a heads up when we're taking them, 845 or 945. But I want to get to our guests. We're joined with the one and only Elijah Mankier. He's a veteran war correspondent with 35 years of experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. Elijah, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm fine. Thank you. Good. I am so glad that you are with us. I want to get into the sanctions that they've applied to Iran. So right here, the European Union has agreed on the fresh rounds of sanctions on Iran on Wednesday. This time over providing drones that Russia has used to strike battlefields and civilian targets in Ukraine. Again, this is um, according to the New York Times. Um, Iran has said, those aren't ours. Russia has said, those aren't ours. And yet, sanctions nonetheless. What is going on here? And why is the European Union sanctioning Iran for supplying something to Russia when the U.S. and Europe has been supplying Russia, um, Ukraine weapons um, hand over this? What's going on with this? Well, it's very simple. The rule in the West is as the following. We are allowed to do what we want. You do what we, what we want, but you don't do what we do. So for the West to supply Ukraine with weapons, for the West to bomb Afghanistan, destroy the country for 20 years, destroy Libya, destroy Iraq, destroy Syria, steal the oil from Syria, all that is permitted as long as the West is doing it. And for Turkey to supply Ukraine with the drone Bayraktar, and for Turkey, for um, uh, Israel to supply Ukraine with uh, drones, for the US to supply Ukraine with weapons, Germany, France, everybody is supplying Ukraine with weapons. That is permitted because it is run by the West and their allies. As long as it is under this umbrella, there are no problems. When Iran is supplying weapons to Russia, because there is a defense agreement between the two countries, and Russia is free to do whatever it wants with this weapon, now that is create a whole hoo-ha around the world because it is upsetting the war that the U.S. and NATO are mounting and carrying on against Russia. So anything that can disturb or jeopardize the victory of the U.S. 
and NATO against Russia in Ukraine, now this is when the West is going to react. And here we're talking about the Americans have uh, applied 3,600 sanctions against Iran, but Europeans were always hesitating because Iran has uh, never left the JCPOA, that is a nuclear agreement. The U.S. did in 2018. The U.S. is accusing Iran for not respecting a deal that the Americans have left, and the Europeans are just there watching and playing the mediator role and accusing Iran for not being uh, very serious in submitting to the U.S. request. And it's just playing the role of the postman. At the end of the day, when the Europeans are saying we're going to impose further sanctions on Iran, inevitably the Europeans have always responded to the U.S. sanctions have pulled out from Iran since 2018. No European country or company is dealing with Iran since 2018. There are sanctions, the U.S. unilateral illegal sanctions on Iran that are fully respected by Europe. So I really don't understand what Europe is going to do and what kind of sanction Europe can impose on Iran that the U.S. did not impose already. No, that makes sense. I guess, and look, I thousand percent agree with you. I guess my thing is, when you're looking at the world order, up until the point where Russia, uh, the United States, um, I'm sorry, up until the point where there was this kind of war taking place between Russia and Ukraine, U.S. did everything it could to isolate Iran in and of itself. And you're right. All of those sanctions that they basically applied to Iran was trying to destroy the government itself. So when the war started, though, and the U.S. started putting all of these sanctions on Russia, and for that matter, even trying to put sanctions on China. You had a situation where Russia had such, let's say, an international footprint that those sanctions had grotesquely negative consequences across the globe. But one of those consequences was showing a certain level of weakness. All things being equal now, Russia has started to make deals and agreements with all of these other countries, whether you're talking about BRICS, Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, um, I'm sorry, Organization, or Belt and Road, which allowed Iran another pathway in order to get its goods out and allowed them a second order of economies in order to work with. So I guess my question is, will these sanctions work at all? And can you talk a little bit about how this kind of display of power on some level shows a weakness of power because they weren't able to accomplish their objectives? Not to mention, everything that's taking place right now is basically allowing Iran to make other deals and agreements around the world, including those with Russia. Meaning, the show of power in a sort almost shown an issue of weakness in the way that the world is basically changing into this kind of, um, let's say, multipolar world as opposed to the unipolar world that we basically were accustomed to for the last 20 or so years. Give me your take on that, just your analysis of this in a geopolitical sense or standpoint. Well, first of all, we have to be honest. There is no war going on between Russia and Ukraine. There is a war going on in Ukraine between Russia and the United States of America. And the Americans, yeah, and the Americans called upon all their allies to participate. And then they said to the Ukrainians, you fight and we are with you and behind you and we will support you to the end, to the last Ukrainian, basically. So that should be really clear because if you leave to the Ukrainian the decision to fight this war, this useless war or not, the Ukrainians will not fight because at the end of the day, they're not that stupid to uh, assume the responsibility of the destruction of their countries. My experience in war is people wake up at the end of the war 
then agreements are signed, and then they are left with a destroyed country. And this is when they realize, well, what kind of stupid we were to be engaged in this war. We've seen the war, the civil war in Lebanon for 15 years. We've seen the war in Syria for 11 years. We see the war in Libya that still continue. We see the war in Iraq. I mean, all these war in Afghanistan for 20 years, they always end up with a deal signed only when the big countries and the big power agree and are happy with the deal. Now, to answer your question, Iran has been under sanctions since 1979 by the first sanction imposed by President Jimmy Carter. For 43 years, sanctions against Iran escalated and started to add up. At the end of the day, the sanctions have only one purpose, to curb the will of the population, but not the regime, because the regime survives. The people who are suffering from the sanctions and those who impose these sanctions, United States and Europe, they know very well what is the consequences of these sanctions and who is mainly affected by these sanctions. Now, because the population is under these sanctions and the government is the government voted by the people, what the government does is try to be self-sufficient. And this is what Iran has been doing since 1979 when they had really nothing. They've started from scratch. Now, today we've seen Russia has been busy in imposing deterrence with the Americans throughout the years by uh, producing supersonic weapons and uh, uh, consolidating their nuclear capability and long-range missiles. It is inevitable that Russia never thought to start a war on a classical basis with using tanks and uh, short-range or medium-range missiles the use of drone, etc. Other countries were very advanced in other technology, but less advanced in strategic weapons and nuclear capabilities. Inevitably, Russia is going to look for other countries if they have, like the Americans, buy the engine of their uh, space uh, ship from Russia. It doesn't mean that the Americans are not capable, but sometimes countries rely on one another to buy what they have the best and they don't bother to do it because it costs them even much more than buying it from another country. Now, Iran is selling drones uh, to Russia, and it is up to Russia to decide how and why and where to use these drones. If they sell them a short-range missile or medium-range missile, it's also up to Russia to decide because I remember in 2006 when I was in Lebanon during the war, that Israel started against Lebanon, after 15 days, the Israelis started to scream and the United States created uh, an air bridge between uh, uh, the United States and Tel Aviv, going through Ireland, uh, the UK and other European cities to supply Israel with enough bombs because they have exhausted the bombs. And we're talking about 15 days. Here we're talking about eight months of war from Russia against NATO. We're talking about not the 30 countries that represent NATO. We hear what the defense secretary, the U.S. defense secretary said uh, by having 40 nations gathered in the German Rammstein um, military air base that is under the control of the United States 
where all the 40 nations are gathering to plan direct uh, the war against Russia and to supply uh, Ukraine with the adequate weapons following the intelligence information they have, the satellite photos, etc. And all planners are there. This is why the war against Russia is kind of global from the part of the West. They're, these are the most, the richest country in the world. And the, the Western countries, they can afford uh, supplying uh, weapons uh, to Ukraine and continue the war against Russia. Although we have also to say that they start to scream that they have reached their strategic uh, warehouses uh, in uh, regarding to the quantity of weapons that are left because they have already sent everything to Ukraine and they're asking now their industry to start working and supply more uh, weapons and ammunition so they can send it to Ukraine because they have the intention to keep this war very long. So to go back to your question, yes, um, sanctions can affect the Iranian civ uh, civilians, but not more than what they have already been affected in the last 43 years. Right. Elijah, but Iran is saying that these are not our drones. And Russia is saying that those are not Iranian drones. What's the truth of this? Because I remember you reported earlier that these were Iranian drones. So uh, is, are the governments lying about it? And if so, why? And is there any evidence to nail down that these are Iranian drones that are being used? Even if there are evidence that the Iranian drones are used, well, good on Russia because Russia is fighting NATO. And the, the NATO's objective is to force Ukraine not to talk to the Russians. And that was from the third beginning of the war when Ukraine wanted to talk to Russia, started the meeting in Turkey, and then the Americans said, no, you don't continue. And they blew up the uh, diplomatic talks because in every single country at war with another, there are always diplomatic talks. But we see the exception today in Ukraine. This is not happening. So for Russia to go and use the uh, drones, but the Israelis have supplied drones to Ukraine. The uh, Americans have supplied drones to Ukraine. They said it. And the, the uh, and Turkey did the same. Now we hear other uh, European states are going to do the same and follow suit. So if Russia has, we should not say why and, and if there are evidence that there are Iranian drones. Well, every country has the right to buy any weapon from another country. The United Nations Security Council resolution in 2015, 2231, allowed uh, Iran to return to normality among the international um, community. This is why I said the unilateral illegal U.S. sanctions on uh, Iran, because they don't come from the United Nations, they come from one single country, that is bullying all the others and saying you impose sanctions and you respect my sanctions on Iran, otherwise I will put sanctions on you. So what's wrong with Russia buying Iranian uh, drone or Iranian missiles if this is what they need? Russia is going to buy it from all over the world. Russia asked China, but China said, I want to remain uh, neutral for the time being because the West is waiting for me to impose sanctions on me, and this is not the time. China is supporting Russia, but is not sending weapons in this way. Well, Korea is, and other states are. You have to remember that two-thirds of the world are not with the U.S. 
I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Russian buying drones. They can buy whatever weapons they want. I guess my thing is, are they, I mean, look, from my standpoint, the country at war buys things in order to help it win the war. And if there's a product, a weapon, an item that it needs to do so, then they buy it. In this case, so there's nothing wrong at all with Russia getting Iranian drones. I guess my question is, are they indeed Iranian drones? I mean, Russia is saying they're not. Iran is saying they're not. Are they saying this purely for political reasons in order to try to shade or keep Iran out of any kind of sanctions that may um, come from them using those drones? Or is it just Iranian design? I mean, I guess I'm trying to nail down whether or not it's true one way or the other, not necessarily put a value judgment on whether they should do it or not, meaning whether they should buy it or not. I've seen these drones in Syria previously. Now, we have to understand that the sharing of knowledge and when you have a McDonald's that opened in Moscow, this is not uh, run by Americans, but by Russians who have the franchise. And when you pass on the information and you pass on your experience and you sell your product, the other country can produce as much as the country needs from whatever weapon is. And we're talking about these drones, they manufactured in Russia. Ah, there we are. If, yeah, if the Russians have the power to manufacture any weapon today, and they are indeed preparing for a long classical war without the use of nuclear capability, because they realize that this is what the West wants and wants to play hard and wants to continue this war. So Russia today is capable of manufacturing any weapon, and this is what they have turned their um, um, industry to manufacture weapons that are used according to the necessity of the war in Ukraine, including the Iranian drones. I see. But I just would like to add one little detail. The Bayraktar Turkish drone is an Israeli technology. So can we say that is Israel and Turkey who are bombing or have bombed the Armenian in the war between Azerbaijan and Armenia? Can we say the same that the Israeli bombed the Libyans by using uh, the Turkish-Israeli drone? We can't say that. We can say this is a decision of the Azerbaijani leader to use the drone that he purchased, that he is making locally, like the uh, Turks. When the Turks say that the F-35, that the Americans are imposing sanction on us, because Turkey is participant with the construction of the F-35 in Turkey. So what can we do here? We, de- we say the Americans are bombing whichever country that Turkey is uh, bombing when they use the, F- the American um, invention F-35, or we say it is Turkey. So here there is a fine line between who is the one behind the original idea and uh, technology and who is using it. No, that makes sense. And, and that makes perfect sense. This is kind of like um, the Houthis in Yemen, where you got, what, 5% of drone takes down 5% of the oil from, um, from Saudi Arabia. And they immediately say, this is Iran's fault. And Iran's like, well, we had nothing to do with it. But I think your point is, it's one thing for a country to manufacture somebody else's drones. You can't necessarily say that the where they got the design from is where the country that is basically using them. Russia is producing them and using them. They're basically Russian, even though they may be Iranian design. I just want to nail down that that's what you're saying. Well, what I want to say is the idea of imposing further sanctions on Iran is not related to the drone. Iran is engaged in the JCPOA nuclear deal and is stating its limit and said, this is my boundary. 
and you are not going to cross my boundaries unless you provide me with enough security that you are going to be honest and you're not going to tear up the JCPOA as Donald Trump did in 2018. Right. And now the Americans are putting pressure on the Iranians through the European, pushing the Europeans to impose sanctions on Iran and saying, well, uh, other country would join us to imp- illegally with imposing illegal sanctions because they are unilateral. They are made by 11% of the world population that represent, this is what the West represent in the world. And these um, uh, group of population, of leaders, have decided to put more pressure on Iran, say, well, let us exchange. If you are more, f- if you are more flexible with the JCPOA, maybe we can give it a second thought. At the end of the day, double standards and hypocrisy is really the motive of the West since decades. We look at the countries in a different way. We have the most stupid person that I've heard two days ago, Joseph Borrell, saying we are the garden and the rest of the world is a jungle. Yes. So how can you deal with people with such a mentality? He believes he is living in the 15th century conquistadores. He's completely off his head. He thinks the rest of the world are what? Rubbish? And the Europeans and the Westerns are the only people who deserve to live and have their garden. And if instead of the jungle expanding toward us, we go towards the jungle. Well, you've been going and massacring what you call the jungle since decades. Yeah, agreed. Thousand percent of that. Elijah, this is Malik, thanks for joining us. Um, and I'm glad you're here because the other day we were talking about, and just shifting slightly, we were talking about the protests. And uh, Melancon and many of the protesters that were out there, one of the um, suggestions that came out of that, and actually was a little before the protest when they were talking about the possibility of Macron bypassing Parliament to pass his budget. And now we just got a report. This is actually from yesterday. But the update is that the government, um, he actually, Macron actually invoked Article 49 of France's constitution, which essentially allowed it to bypass parliament in order to pass a budget. Now, the NUPS, I think that's the name of them, the left-leaning coalition of French socialists and communists, communists and Greens, said that they would retaliate with the no-confidence uh, motion if the actual if it were successful. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, I know this was already anticipated that Macron might do it, but what do you think um, now that it seems as if this is exactly what he's going to do? No, he already, the, the French prime minister already used Article 49.3 of the Constitution to end the debate and pass the 2023 budget without a vote. Mm-hmm. Now, that shows where democracy is at. It shows how the French president is so insecure of the will of the population, because the parliament represents the will of the population, and how it disagrees with his policy to the point that he is evoking the uh, paragraph 3 of the Article 49 uh, to uh, prevent the National Assembly from voting. It, this is a confirmation that uh, the President of France, Emmanuel Macron, doesn't have the majority, doesn't enjoy the uh, support of the population, and certainly not the National Assembly. So for that, he, he's taking decisions that are wrong. He's taking decisions that are 
um, very bad for the French people. He has canceled the meeting with the Ch German chancellor and postponing until um, January because they disagree on the way to run Europe. These two giant European countries, we're talking about France and Germany, have a strong disagreement on how to take European decision. Now, a few days ago, uh, you guys asked me if Europe is going to be disintegrated. Europe, from the title, is not going to be disintegrated, but from within, is totally disintegrated because nationalism is uh, fed by the disagreement of the population over the uh, collective decision of the European Union and those who represent the European Union, if we're talking about Ursula von der Leyen and uh, Joseph Borrell and other leaders who are really driving the US policy rather than the EU policy, that are incompatible. It's okay if they take decisions similar to uh, the US when they uh, fall into the interests of the population of Europe. But here we're talking about decision that is putting everybody in the street. 4,000 companies in Italy are closing down in the last month. You have uh, 5 million people who are refusing to pay their taxes. You have 2.5 million who don't pay the electricity bill because it's too much and they can't afford it. This is the beginning of the tip of the iceberg is going to blow in the face of all Europeans, including Macron, that was voted not out of the will of the population, but because he was the bad choice between him and a worse choice that is Marine Le Pen. And one, it seems that one of the fights that are taking place in Europe has to do with the way they're trying to deal with that. Meaning, I mentioned earlier that Britain it seems to be in a situation, especially with Liz Trust, that they were taking out all of this money. They wanted to borrow all of this money in order to help people pay their energy bills and everything else. Liz Truss has just resigned. Wow. Liz Truss has just resigned. She didn't make the 17, what was the She didn't 17? even make it to Christmas. She didn't make the 17 days. And look, the Telegraph said she had hours, not necessarily days. And I was going to get to that. I mean, because ultimately the Liz Truss government and even the Boris Johnson government put themselves in a situation where their geopolitical interests overwhelmed their domestic policy, meaning they were going to borrow all of this money in order to pay for the energy bills that the public is basically dealing with. And keep in mind, that is a direct result of their geopolitical policies around the issue of Ukraine. And what they found was that they couldn't do it. They couldn't borrow all the, like hundreds of billion dollars going into for multiple years in order to help people for energy bills, meaning those people are going to take the hit directly. Trust had no way out had no magical door, was greatly unpopular very early on. The pound was falling through the floor as her, as Quartang was even speaking. And now, trust is out. What's your take on that? I mean, it's whirlwind, just almost immediate. What's your take, Elijah? Well, I remember a few days ago, uh, you guys laughed when I said trust has lost the trust of the population. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the quickest way uh, ever for a prime minister to rule the country for 40 days only. And when we see how the finance uh, minister and how the uh, interior minister, they both left the boat because it was a sinking boat. Yeah. Because the situation in the UK is really overwhelming and is going to blow in the face of everybody. And I don't think the 
conservative country, a conservative party is going to hold for very long. Of course, in a week or a couple of weeks, they will uh, select a new leader and uh, a new uh, prime yeah. minister. Yeah. However, this doesn't change anything. The country is really on the uh, verge of collapsing. It is the, it's the Brexit. Uh, the UK is on its own and is not receiving support from the EU because it's outside the EU. Right. The UK is taking decisions that are against the benefit of the British citizens because they followed the US citizen and because they thought their alliance with the US will save them and that the US will rush to support them. Well, there are also troubles in the US. Look at what Biden is saying about the oil reserves and how he is so angry with OPEC Plus because they cut down to 2 million barrels their daily production. Right. All that, it's the whole world is in crisis. And why? For two reasons. We don't have to ignore the effect of COVID-19 and the shutdown of uh, the world uh, industry and economy. But on top of that, you come and you start a war with Russia on the world scale and you uh, declare the cut of energy and the suspension of gas that coming to Europe to impoverish one of the rare continents that are still holding and have still a, a bit of money to support other poor country. And now nobody can support nobody. The poor is going to become poorer. The rich is going to become poor and crises are going to blow up in the face of every single prime minister. Do you think, for, for example, Giorgia Meloni, that is expected to be a prime minister in uh, Italy, Italy, is going to survive? It's not going to survive. You heard yesterday Silvio Berlusconi, the former prime minister, saying, well, my relationship with Putin are back. I've sent him, uh, he sent me 10 or 20 bottles of vodka and I sent him a similar bottle of Lambrusco. Right. So there is a good relationship between uh, leaders where Russia ran for uh, the support of Italy during the COVID-19 when all of Europe shut down its doors. I was in Italy and I traveled to France and I was subject to the Gestapo uh, trying to prevent me from returning because they were afraid of the COVID. Well, I'm coming from Europe. I'm coming from Italy. And they shut down everything. And then after that, we learned very recently that the COVID uh, uh, was not meant to protect people from contamination and contaminating others. So all that is a mockery that is blowing in the face of the European leaders for their wrong decisions that were detrimental to the European benefit. So wh what's going to happen to Liz Truss is going to happen also to another a conservative leader, at the end of the day, the UK will be forced to call for an early election. And calling for an early election, it will be the end of the conservative leadership of the country. Well, I mean, Liz Truss wasn't going to call for an election for what, like two years? They basically forced her out because her government failed um, across the board. I mean, but what does this mean? I mean, all things being equal, the UK, like you say, is still going to be in the exact same position, even if they get in another prime minister. Meaning, the oil prices are set. They're still going to have to pay that. The amount of money that they're going to have to give people in order to accommodate the amount they're paying for food or for gas or the amount of inflation is still there. Meaning whatever government they put in is still stuck with the same situation to which Liz Truss was dealing with. Yeah, she dealt with it miserably. But all things being equal, the situation is just miserable in and of itself. 
What does this mean for the UK going forward? Well, we have certainly um, uh, that Jeremy Hunt, one of the best candidates to succeed, trust, mm-hmm. he's not going to run. He's not going to take up the leadership of the Conservative Party. But it shows how the country is in crisis, it is in political crisis. Yes, the decisions to invest in wars, to send weapons when uh, and to send money when you are in need internally is exactly what's happening in the U.S. and the rest of Europe. Now, when we are forced to send the money to Ukraine and start supplying Ukraine with $66 billion, um, and then we have uh, the American uh, former vice chairman saying, well, this is very cheap because Ukraine is fighting on our behalf. Right. But it's not Ukraine that is fighting on behalf of the U.S. It's the European populations who are suffering from the consequences of the decision of their leaders. This is what Liz Truss is suffering or has suffered from. This is what Macron is suffering when he evoked Article 43. Uh, and this is what uh, the, the Chancellor uh, Schulz is going to suffer in uh, Germany when the population is going to pick up even more because there are already manifestations in the street against the decision of Germany asking to regain the um, Nord Stream. And now right. the, uh, sorry, Article 49, not 43. And uh, when uh, now uh, President Putin is offering another alternative to Europe, saying, okay, well, we can build a station for your gas in Turkey, come and take the gas from Turkey because because you are stupid enough to go and buy from India, my gas from India and from China, when I can supply it closer to Turkey and you pay even less for the transport. I mean, can you imagine we are going to buy the Russian gas from India? At a markup, no less. It's like, oh, we're not taking the Russian gas, but we'll take Indian gas that just so happens to come from Russia itself. I mean, there's no, no way it is- as they tell us this is the Russian gas and we're buying the Russian gas, but from India. And India is telling us, how much gas do you need? We say, well, we need 5 billion cubic meter. Okay. Uh, India goes to the Russia and say, give me more, 5 billion more so I can sell it to the European. I mean, this is ridiculous. It is so ridiculous on his face. What about Keir Starmer? Meaning, what is, is the Labour Party going to basically advantage itself as a result? of the chaos that's going on in the Conservative Party? And will the Labour Party have a different policy in general? Meaning, is the Labour Party going to do anything different than the Conservative Party, whether it's on Ukraine or the issue of um, dealing with the population itself? The problem is that the situation in the country is so bad that no party is going to be able to sustain it. So the, the uh, Labour Party is going to be in the same chaotic situation that was left by the Conservative Party because it takes years to stand up and come out of this crisis. It's like Meloni in Italy. Meloni is saying, I am going to go against the immigrants. What the immigrants are, do- the immigrants are doing to the economy? The, the, immigrants on, the immigrants are not taking the gas that you need from Russia, and then you stop taking it from Russia. So you see, they divert the attention of the population to make them feel afraid. And then they say, this is you you have to be afraid because we are here to protect you and then whoever is going to take the leadership if it is a fascist like meloni or the labor party in the uk is going to face the same problem because the damage has already been done wow that is wow and you're right 
I mean, I was listening and reading reports taking place out of the UK. And I got to be honest, I, I don't see the way out for them. I mean, it doesn't necessarily seem like they have the money to pay for the bills. And even the people, and look, I was there, right? And having a conversation with the people. And they were talking about how much they were suffering, either from the gas bills, the inflation. And from their standpoint, they didn't see any kind of sense of politicians making inroads in a way that making their lives better. All of them were resentful, whether you're talking about doctors, taxi drivers, people in stores. Didn't matter who you were talking to, all of them basically had that same line that they were screwed. And like you said, the fact that the Louis um, Liz Trust resigned kind of makes it that much clearer. Even the issue of the dollar. I want to talk about the strong dollar and an effect that's having around the globe. So the pound collapsed, the euro collapsed, um, and even Japan's yen, I was reading this morning, collapsed. And so you have the strong dollar that all of these things, meaning if they're getting oil and gas, if they're getting supplies, the gas, or for that matter, the energy they're getting out of the United States, their wheat currency is now having to buy stuff priced in dollars um, while at a time where their currencies are weakening and at a time that the dollar is strengthening. Give me your take on this. I mean, an effect that this is having on Europe and for that matter, rising economies. You see, the strong, a strong dollar reduces the price of foreign goods in the United States. So inflation uh, would be even worse without it. So by uh, seeing a very strong dollar, people will go around the world, will go to uh, buy their goods from countries that, with a weak currency like the euro today, 0 0.97. Uh, so that is uh, accept, more acceptable than buying from the U U.S., or going to the UK to buy their goods. But because everybody today is in shortage of money and uh, means of survival, having a strong dollar doesn't mean anything because you still are paying every time when there is a little crisis, extra money for your gasoline in the US, and you're still paying more for the goods and your food, even if the dollar is strong worldwide outside the US. So it means nothing to, for you, really, but it means it is it is counterproductive because you will have less people willing to buy your goods. On the other hand, because you're mainly selling weapons these days and uh, uh, exporting your weapons and forcing countries to buy what you have and forcing Europe to exhaust all its uh, arsenal and start proposing weapons, so you are good on selling weapons whatever the um, uh, price is going to be. However, you can't, a country cannot only survive by selling weapons because the budget of uh, weapon selling in the U.S. is around $180, $187 billion, if I remember well. So um, dollar today is strong during the uh, uh, inflation, but it is not having a positive effect inside the country domestically. Do you feel the difference having a strong dollar domestically or not? I mean, when I was outside of the country, yes. Like when in the UK, it's like, yeah, give me that steak. <laughs> 30 bucks. Fair enough, right? It's like, but in the country itself, no, you don't necessarily see it. You see it more so when you're external from the country and you can see how their prices have gone up, but you can see with the dollar in comparison to either euro or um, the pound. Um, I want to get to Italy for one more second. This is brutal. Electricity tariffs in Italy saw record growth last month, exceeding 136% on an annual basis, according to National Consumer Reports on Tuesday. The report said that electricity prices came out on top 
of the ranking of the most expensive goods and services, which the union regularly compiles based on data from the Italian National Institute of Statistics. In the category of non-food products, electricity was followed by air travel across Europe, which has risen 128% over the past year. Then came international flights, which almost doubled, 97.4%. And right here, as for food, the ranking was led by vegetable oils, up by almost 60%. The prices of butter and rice rose by 38% and 26.7% respectively. Other foodstuffs saw increases of more than 20%, including pasta, canned milk, flour, and basic vegetables. Pasta in Italy is going through the roof. Oh, man. All of that lasagna <laughs> and everything else. Oh, just painful. I mean... Like, it's one thing to say, okay, 10% inflation. It's another thing to get into the details. And you're reading 100% increases, 60%, 70%, 20%. And this is like on basic goods that everybody buys. Everybody buys. And the 59% increase in household electricity prices in Jeez. quarter four. Think about that. Your electricity goes from, let's say, 80 bucks to 130 or 140 bucks. Yeah. On a whim. On a whim. You're just trying to live your life. I mean... Elijah, I mean, this is not just Italy, though, right? This is pretty much every country in Europe. Yes, even more, because all these figures of inflation are not real. Because you calculate, the way to calculate the inflation is you take a large spectrum of goods and you put them together to come up with the inflation. But if you take only food on its own, you have 200%. If you have uh, the... Uh, the gasoline is increasing at 2.3, 2.4 per liter when it was uh, 1.5 before the prices. So you, the, the prices in Italy of food were the lowest in the rest of Northern Europe. Really? That's for sure. Yes. There was less than uh, France, less than uh, Belgium, less than the UK, Luxembourg, uh, certainly less than Holland that is very expensive there, uh, or the North, North uh, Nordic uh, countries. And today, for the Italian to go and buy the, uh, their food and paying twice or three times the price is extremely painful because their revenue haven't increased twice or three times. And also, the, the mockery is where? The mockery is when they say, okay, we're going to impose four or five times the price higher on companies, but not on the individual. And then the individual is saying, well, are you making fun of me? Because everything comes through companies. And when they pay four times, they're going to make me pay four times. So they pay the electricity bill four times and I pay what they have paid. So how this is going to work to find the balance between what you are forcing me to pay because of your decision? And in Italy, Italy depends on oil. So where does the oil come from? It used to come from uh, Russia in 40%. And now we have to look for somewhere else. Everybody in Europe is on the same boat. Everybody in Europe is suffering. But this is not something that can continue. Elijah, we're going to have to close it. Thank you very much for that, given an assessment of what's taking place in Europe. Astonishing. Elijah Mangay is a veteran war correspondent with 35 years experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. You can follow him on Twitter at EJMALRAI and find his reporting on his website, ElijahJM.wordpress.com. Fault Lines, Radio Sputnik, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. 
live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Right on. And yeah, man. Trust is out. Trust is out. (laughs) That fast. 44 days. 44 days, yeah. And out. I mean, granted, she was elected by people who were basically part of the Tories. And in her head, I mean, it's astonishing. You come in unelected by the majority of the population. I mean, what, 10, what, 40 million people, however many people are in the UK. And you just get elected by a few, I don't know, thousands of conservatives. And you come in as if you got a mandate from the country. Oh, we're going to pass that. We're going to slash the tax rate. Roll I mean, back so, those corporate taxes. Yeah, move yeah. back those corporate taxes. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And all things being equal, we're going to borrow hundreds of billions of dollars to do it. And it's like, who are you doing this for? You're doing this for the rich. I mean, the, the Central Bank of London was literally raising rates just like they were here to deal with the issue of inflation. Now, you may like it, you may hate it, but either way, they were trying to constrain the money supply. Her response is, let's blow it up. Let's do the supply side economic stuff. And we're going to give all this money to the rich. And we're going to, they're going to pee that money down on the little underlings that are in the country itself. And the bank and everybody else flipped out. And they were like, well, okay, if they're going to borrow all of this money, this is going to make the pound that much more insolvent. And the pound plummeted, plummeted, fell through the floor. Other conservatives that are typically love this idea of giving money to the rich, get rid of the National Health Service, let's do this, let's slash taxes. They were freaked out. They were freaked out. And freaked out in a way where they were like, this government can't stay, this government needs to go away, this government needs to fail. She has till Christmas, lo and behold, it's not even till Christmas. You got two more months of Christmas. are typically supportive of tax cuts. They and, love it. Yeah, so the fact they that it. they came out in opposition to this, and as you as you repeatedly said, the fact that the markets responded Oh man, they freaked out. That, like the yeah. pound was like, you can literally put up a chart and you can watch Quartain give a speech on the money budget and you would see the number just go down and down, every word coming out of his mouth. He is so self-satisfied with himself of how great he is and how intellectually dominant they are in the financial sense. The market, the money, right there. And get, get, the getting floor. rid of Quartain was not enough. Not Clearly. enough. I mean, because, I mean, look, you can try to put a knife in Quartain all you want. They right. call him from the U.S. in order to fire. Imagine that. Make him take the, the pert walk. Of- <laughs> yeah. Like, take the walk of shame. And he's like coming from the U.S. He's in the U.S. He takes an emergency flight back. back, back. Imagine being on an eight or six hour flight thinking to yourself, okay, why am I being called back to the government? And you're the one who they put a knife in as if it's your budget in and of itself by itself. Everybody understood. Look, if the trust wasn't for that budget, that budget would have never been released. So it's like it wasn't Quartang by himself. He might have loved it. Yes, let's cut taxes more. Let's give the rich all of this money. And let's give the poor a pittance. We're going to give you five bucks, buddy, but we're going to give that rich guy $5,000. They fired him. They yeah. fired him. And the public, were, they were like, that's not enough. That was your budget, Liz Trust. Your budget. Just fascinating stuff. God, 44 days, the fastest prime minister ever to lose her job in the UK. I think it's even more weird that they're now saying they're interested in even having Boris come back. Boris is not coming back. They may love Boris. They may like Boris. But that was a calamity of a prime minister. And look, Boris Johnson had the capability of pulling Meaning he could have created a dominant um, Tory party that would have went on for years. I said the same thing about Trump. 
When Donald Trump came in, he was a wild card. Donald Trump could have did anything he wanted because all things being equal, he wasn't fully a Republican, nor was he a Democrat. And he had this level of independence where he could have did anything he wanted. He decided to go extremely hardcore to the right. He decided that. But think about what Trump could have did if he could have pulled in Democrats. He did a little bit to the left. He didn't owe anyone anything. Trump could have got marijuana. He could have. He could have did whatever he he wanted. I mean, he could have. And the party would have followed him. Yes, they would have. That's the important. I mean, even with the war stuff, the Republican Party all of a sudden, yeah, we are skeptical of these wars. Why? Because Trump came in and was skeptical of those wars. Meaning the individual, when Obama came out about the gay marriage stuff, what did Democrats do? Okay, fair enough. Oh, gay marriage is fine. Blacks, especially. Mm-hmm. Almost overnight. Well, if Obama's for totally it, totally okay. Yeah, switch. Totally immediately. Switch. It's like Joe Biden comes out. Oh, Obama doesn't really care about that gay stuff. And then Obama's forced to come out and says, yes, I support gay marriage, et cetera. All of a sudden, on the dime, blacks are like, okay, gay marriage oh, okay. is okay. Yeah, yeah, we're okay with it. We're fine with it. The black guy says it's good. We're good. I guess my point is that you have certain opportunities when mm-hmm. you're a political candidate where you don't owe anybody anything to do whatever and you didn't. want. Trump could have said we're going to get rid of marijuana legalization. Yep. He's the one who put a stall on the student loan stuff. He's the one who came out and said let's give $1,200. Something yep. that I don't believe a Democrat ever would have said. Mr. Socialist giving out checks. Yes! <laughs> Trump was the one who's like we need to do some of these medical bills. And then came up with this idea of socialist. Okay, we're going to get this stuff from socialist countries but we are not necessarily going to set price caps on drugs. My point is that certain politicians come in, don't owe anybody anything. Boris Johnson, yes, was a right winger, but he was getting all sorts of labor seats when he won that race. And he could have said, okay, fair enough. We're going to take certain policies that are going to be more towards the left in order to keep those lefts while also doing stuff on the right. Trump could have did the exact same thing. Trust out. 44 days. No idea what's going to happen to the UK. And even if they get somebody else in, what policies are they going to take? They're going to be dramatically different from trust in order to propagate their country. Yeah, I believe Elijah is right. They're in political turmoil. I have no idea their way out. And I don't believe for a moment that Keir Starmer is going to be the answer to it. I could be wrong. And so can the Tories hold on to power? Well, the question is, when is the next election? I mean, the only thing that's going to happen again is another Tory election. Now, the next Tory may come in and say, okay, we're going to have a um, national election. But they're going to lose that national election either way. So is the guy going to call in the election that he is going to most likely lose? It's, well, how much pressure is going to be applied to him? That's the question. Meaning when Boris was in power, Boris was like, let's have an election. Because Boris knew he was going to beat the stuffing out of Jeremy Corbyn. How about the new guy? Whoever that new guy is that comes in, is that new guy going to be able to beat the stuffing out of Keir Starmer after the display between Johnson and Truss governments collapsing? Oh, I love politics. I love politics. We'll see. I'm curious. Is there going to be enough political will of saying you have no legitimacy, you have no legitimacy, you have two of your governments that basically collapse? Call a national election. Are they going to do it? We'll see. Well, I think Reese will probably repeat the breaking news. Yes. (laughs) Oh, you, Reese. I'm sorry. Just fascinating politics. As you may or may not have heard, the new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, has just announced her resignation in breaking news. (laughs) In domestic news, slightly fewer than half of Americans have high confidence that votes will be counted accurately in the upcoming 2022 midterm elections. A new poll by the National Opinion Research Center, NORC, and Associated Press showed on Wednesday. A total of 47% of Americans say they have a great deal or quite a bit of confidence Another 24% have a moderate amount of confidence, and 28% have either only a little confidence or none at all. Among Democrats, 74% say they are highly confident. On the Republican side, 25% have high confidence, 30% have moderate confidence, 
and 45% have little to no confidence, according to the poll. 52% of respondents say that U.S. democracy is not working well. Only 9% of Americans said democracy is working extremely or very well. Seems like America needs an America to come help save their elections. Interesting. Police in Central Florida arrested a man on Sunday who they said intended to create an active shooter situation with officers and start a war. The Putnam County Sheriff's Office said that Glenn Ressler, 42, of Interlock in Florida, was angry at police for seizing his driver's license during a recent traffic stop because it had already been suspended. That's it? The Sheriff's Office said they sent officers to investigate Ressler's home early Sunday after receiving word about his plans to retaliate for the seizure of his license. God bless America. Former U.S. President Donald Trump was deposed on Wednesday for a civil lawsuit accusing him of defaming E. Joan Carroll in response to her accusing the one-term commander-in-chief of rape. It has been reported Carroll, who is now 78 years old, accused Trump of raping her in a dressing room in the Manhattan Bergdorf Goodman department stores in the 90s after the pair met in the store. The accusation first appeared in a 2019 New York Magazine article when Trump was still president. At the time, Trump defeated, defended himself saying, Carol is not even my type, and accused her of being motivated by political and monetary reasons to make up the story. Carol responded by suing Trump in New York State Court for defamation. Only Donald Trump. Former U.S. Mike Pre <laughs> Vice President Mike Pence rejected in a speech at the Conservative Heritage Foundation the still widespread populist movement that his old boss, Donald Trump, continues to champion and lead. Our movement cannot forsake the foundational commitment we have to security, to limited government, and to life, Pence said in a speech on Wednesday. But neither can we allow our movement to be led astray by the siren song of unprincipled populism that is unmoored from our oldest traditions and most cherished values. Pence voiced no personal criticism of Trump and only referred to him by name as a man I deeply admire. But Pence made clear he had timed his remark in anticipation of a res Republican resurgence in the midterm congressional elections in November that he predicted would restore control of Congress to the Republican Party. In international news, Russian President Vladimir Putin has signed a decree on the introduction of a state of martial law in Kherson, Zaporizhia, the Donetsk People's Republic, and the Lugansk People's Republic. I have signed a decree on the introduction of a, sta of a state of martial law in these four constituent entities of the Russian Federation. It will immediately be sent for approval to the Federation Council, Russia's upper house of parliament, and the State Duma will be informed of the decision, Putin said, speaking at a meeting of the Russian Secretary Council on Wednesday. The Federation Council is expected to convene later in the day to rubber stamp the decree. The text of the decree has been published on the Kremlin's website and indicates that martial law was introduced at 0 hours on October 20th in the affected areas. The decree is grounded in provisions in the Russian Constitution and the 2002 Federal Law on Martial Law. 
The German embassy in Tehran has allegedly played a significant role in the unrest in Iran and coordinated insurgent actions and the course of Western governments to foment the conflict in the Islamic Republic, the FARS news agency reported on Wednesday. According to the report, the German embassy has allegedly played a significant and effective role in the diplomatic pressure and international coordination to foment unrest in Iran. The embassy coordinated foreign governments and international organizations to increase pressure on the domestic situation in the Islamic Republic, Farr said. German diplomats have also allegedly held a series of meetings with employees of Western embassies in Tehran, during which they were discussing ways to increase unrest and further destabilize the situation in Iran, Iran the report said. All parties in the Finnish parliament are in agreement about the necessity to build a fence along parts of the 1,300-kilometer land border between Finland and Russia, according to Prime Minister Sanna Marin. Herself, an eager supporter of the idea, has said after debates on the infrastructure project, project proposed by the Finnish border guard. The Finnish government, Marin, said, will set aside the funds for a test section of the fence in a supplementary budget later this year and funding for the broader project based on experiences from the test section in a supplementary budget next year. The U.S. The issue of U.S. biolabs in Ukraine has once again received wide international publicity. On October 18th, Belarus, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, China, Cuba, Nicaragua, Syria, and Russia called for invoking Article 6 of the Biological Weapons Convention because of U.S. military and biological activities in Ukraine. Article 6 of the Biological Weapons Convention allows states, state parties to lodge a complaint with the UN, the United Nations Security Council, if they suspect a breach of treaty obligations by another state. In the event of such a development, the United States, as a state party to the convention, would be obliged to cooperate in any investigation that may be initiated by the UNSC. Chinese experts interviewed by Sputnik believe that if the U.S. has nothing to hide, it should provide a comprehensive explanation. Inflation has jumped to almost 10% across the Eurozone as the European Union mulls a price cap on Russian gas imports. Eurostat, the data center of the EU's executive body, the European Commission, said prices in September were 9.9% higher than the same time last year across the 19 countries that use euro currency. That was a significant increase on the 9.1% rate Eurostat reported in August. On this day in history, in 1803, the U.S. Senate ratifies the Louisiana Purchase. In 1912, U.S. suffragette Alice Paul began a seven-month jail sentence for peacefully picketing in support of the Women's Suffrage Right to Vote Amendment at the White House in Washington, D.C. In 1944, U.S. forces under General Doug M Douglas MacArthur returns to the Philippines with the landing of the U.S. 6th Army on late. late. In 2020, U.S. Department of Justice sues Google for illegal monopoly over search and, and search advertising. 
These are your headlines for today, Thursday, October 20th, and you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Right on Big News Day, to put it mildly. Um, I went on in the beginning about the Liz Trust stuff, but we went on talking about it. So let's do this. Let's have a conversation about immigration. This is about Title 42. We're going to be joined with Susan Pye. Love that woman. She is one of those people who just gives you the straight shoot. She's not overly political one way or the other. She just tells you this is what's taking place. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm drawn with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Reese, Malik, and I are putting down whatever platform, you're consuming this content on. Give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. Title 42 is utterly amazing. And maybe less than amazing, it's more so what the Biden administration has been deciding to do with this and the politics around this. Title 42 was a provision that came out during Trump era that allowed the U.S. to basically ignore or, let's say, refuse asylum claims over the notion of COVID. We're kicking these people out the country because we can't necessarily take the chance of bringing COVID into the country. This is despite the fact that a million people died as a direct result of COVID in the U.S., and we were the epicenter of COVID. Fast forward. Joe Biden attacked Title 42, hated Title 42. The other Democrats were apoplectic about Title 42 and the fact that you're using this asylum as is American as apple pie and go so far as to take it to court in order to fight over whether or not this measure should be available or enacted. COVID at this point in the U.S., according to Joe Biden, is not necessarily an issue anymore. Nobody's wearing their mask. Everybody is doing their thing. And yet, Joe Biden, despite fighting it in court, is using it, using it as a tool to deal with the issue of immigration. You have, what, two million people hitting the border? Joe Biden doesn't really have a way out. So his thing is, despite the fact that we're fighting it in court and me going after it, we're also going to use it. This is, of course, politically problematic. And yes, is a contradiction in terms from the standpoint of what Biden has said and is saying versus what the president is doing. And can I, can I add something to what you Go said? Just a point of clarification. So Title 42, Trump implemented, um, it, it didn't come about in during the Trump administration. I think it was an original public health authority from the 1940s or oh, something. Oh, I see, that he used. Trump used it as a public health authority in response to COVID. Yes. So it, it was already on the book. He didn't create it. He just basically exploited right. it for his own ends. Right, yeah. So the Public Health Service Act of 1944. Okay, thank you. Perfect, excellent. And so Biden, not knowing what to do, Despite attacking Title 42, oh, this is horrible. We should never be using this. Xenophobic. Xenophobic. Now, Biden himself is using it and has expanded it to Venezuelans. Expanded it to Venezuelans. Yeah. So let's go to our guests. We have Susan Pye. She has a degree in psychology from UCLA, where she worked with the internationally recognized UCLA Brain Mapping Lab. She attended 
law school at the University of Louisville and Naoga University in Japan and has assisted the Senate Judiciary Committee on Fraud and Abuse Issues in Business, Immigration, Civil Matters. Susan has also submitted testimony to the House Judiciary Committee on Humanitarian Immigration Issues. Susan, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Hi, I'm fine, thank you. How are you guys? We are great, great. and better that you are joining us. So apparently, Biden has started to use Title 42 right here. The Biden administration is embracing Trump's playbook. Eleanor Acer, Director of Refugee Project, Project Protection at Human Rights First, told The Hill, quote, to the extent that this is some kind of effort that political talking points that are useful over the next few months, compromising principle and an effort to appease anti-immigrant voices is politically detrimental. Sacrificing principle for perceived po- political reasons as a reflection of character at the end of the day. And it typically undermines the administration's credibility. Love that quote. That quote is damning. Her point is, you're using political expedience as opposed to ethical rationality. Meaning if you say that you care about immigrants, you say you care about legal immigration and everything else, and you hate it, this particular provision, then why are you using it? Susan, why is the Biden administration saying one thing and then doing dramatically the opposite? What's going on? Well, I think as a general matter, there were many voices that were not in agreement on immigration within the Biden administration. And that's been proven by the great number of people on immigration policy who who have left the Biden administration. You said that the um, Biden administration, you know, hates Title 42, but on the other hand, they're using it. Well, as we have discussed on your show um, several times before, we never really thought that the Biden administration was against Title 42. In reasons was if they were truly against Title 42, when it went up on appeal this last time, they would have set forth a rule under the Administrative Procedures Act, and that would have, in time, closed the loop and su- settled the issue on Title 42. Um, but they never did that. So at, at that time, you and I talked about it, and we you know, we said that, you know, we did not believe that the Biden administration was actually against Title 42 and that they would actually continue to use Title 42. And that, of course, has been borne out by the fact. Wow. And now this is apparently being expanded to Venezuelans. And so apparently, what, there are 27,000 or something that are going to be evacuated under this particular policy or under a different policy? Biden is saying, look, we're going to let some in right here. And now as administration battles, GOP-led states who won an initial court battle blocking the recession. They've used the policy anew, vowing to take in 24,000 Venezuelans through a separate program while immediately spelling any others that travel to the U.S. Meaning, we'll take in 24,000. But everybody else, sorry, bro, we're kicking you out because we're concerned with COVID, despite the fact that COVID is not an issue now. Uh, Give me your take on that. I mean, how many Venezuelans? And maybe you don't know this specific number. But if they're taking in 24,000, that gives this kind of question of, okay, well, how many are they excluding from this? So in the last fiscal year, which ended at the end of September, um, there were approximately 200,000 Venezuelans encountered at the border who the majority, the vast majority of which which probably claimed asylum. So under Title 42, in theory, because they're letting in 24,000 under humanitarian parole, which is the same kind of program that we let Ukrainians in, um, they can uh, expel about uh, about 175,000 Venezuelans, let's say, per year, according to the rate from this last fiscal year, under Title 42. But that number is limited by the number of Venezuelans that Mexico will accept 
um, from the United States as expulsions from the United States because because of our foreign relations um, with or lack thereof with the Venezuelan government, we can't just return the Venezuelans to Venezuela. We have to return them to Mexico. Thank you for um, actually raising that point, because just as a practical matter, Biden deciding to um, invoke Title 42 in reference to Venezuelans, one of the things that was different about, well, Venezuela, as far as the other countries, is that under Title 42 during the Trump administration, there was an agreement with Mexico. So any, you know, whether you were from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, they were willing to accept those back into Mexico, but Venezuela was not on the list. Do you anticipate, like, I I just want to know from a practical sense, how does that work? Do you think that Mexico will then start to, will they add Venezuelans to the list? Because right now, I don't think that they're on the list of those that they're willing to accept back. Uh, Yes. Just recently, the Mexican government has agreed to accept repatriated Venezuelans from the United States border. Um, But we don't know what the number is. And then, of course, uh, Mexico always comes back and says, well, we can only accept this number of Venezuelans that you repatriate to our country because we, the Mexican government, also cannot deport Venezuelans back to Venezuela. Hmm. Wow. The Mexican government can't deport... Because Venezuela, they're not accepting... They don't accept them back. Yeah. You know, so, so at that, the point where they're out, they're out. Right. So where do they go if they're not... Hey. They don't get asylum claims here in the States. Like you say, Mexico is not... So they just basically stay in Mexico. Or here. Or States. Right. Well, one of the things that happens with Title 42 that doesn't happen when somebody is removed, you know, from the United States, the, the let's say, the correct way or under existing laws and regulations, is that um, it can come back repeated times over, across the border or make, make repeated attempts to cross the U.S. border claiming asylum each time because there's no penalty for being expelled under Title 42. Whereas in other cases, if you're you know, removed from the United States or what, removed is what we use instead of uh, deported, then if you keep coming back and you continue to be encountered by the um, by border patrol, then you know there might be a penalty. For example, um, a, a felony count, criminal count of illegal reentry, you know, after removal. Um, but with expulsion under Title Forty Two, there's no such penalty. So what we see is uh, repeated attempts to uh, enter the United States when somebody's expelled under Title Forty Two. And so, okay, so I want to move. Susan, I'm just curious, um, how does that juxtapose as far as the how the Venezuelans were handled with how the um, 18,000 Haitians that were seeking asylum in the last few years that have been, you know, just directly returned to Haiti? Um, I want to say under the Biden administration, they sent over 8,000 Haitians who were seeking asylum um, back across the border in Del Rio, Texas, specifically so how would you say that, you know, the handling of the Venezuelans is um, being just drastically different or, or substantially different from the Haitians? Well, I, I think that you've seen that the government handles their treatment of certain ethnicities um, vastly differently. So the biggest example being the Ukrainians. So we saw with the Ukrainians that not only were they not applying title to them, you know, when they applied at the border, but also under this humanitarian parole program that they could apply for, you know, from outside of um, the southern border and outside of the United States, 
that the government was extraordinarily efficient and fast in admitting them to the United States under that humanitarian parole program. And uh, we'll probably similarly see the same results with the 24,000 Venezuelans, you know, who are going to apply for humanitarian parole outside of the southern border in the United States. So that brings us to another point that's important. People always ask me, well, what is the solution to this, you know, 2 million immigration case backlog with, you know, uh, 200 immigration judges where cases can go on for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years? What's the solution to that? Well, I think we're now getting to the point that, you know, uh, Congress might actually consider getting rid of asylum and in favor of that, um, only meter out uh, humanitarian parole applications like they've done for Ukrainians and the Venezuelans. And that way they control the flow of migrants, you know, into the United States and then eliminate the uh, claiming asylum at the border altogether. But that would require congressional action. And you don't have any expectation that congressional action is going to take place. I'm curious. I, I know you don't often get into the political parts of it, but why do you think that's the case? I mean, Democrats basically use immigration as a political football. I would argue Republicans also. I mean, each one may be going to different bases, but all things being equal, they're still using it as a political football without doing anything um, about it, despite, in some cases, having the power to do stuff about it. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think this is more, let's say, advantageous as a political football as opposed to trying to solve the issue of immigration in and of itself? I think that things are changing. So, in 2005, there was an immigration case backlog of only 200,000 cases. And then now here in fiscal year 2022, um, there's an immigration case backlog of 2 million cases. So I think that it is becoming so unwieldy and so unsustainable that um, limited congressional action has to occur. And actually, I've been thinking about this. And whereas where people are not willing to, politicians are not willing to engage in comprehensive immigration reform. I think that because of the levels of, you know, unsustainability with regards to asylum seekers at the border, that they're going to have to go back and change the law, you know, from the 90s that restricts or eliminates uh, applying for asylum at the border and in favor of that, um, do what they're starting to do now, which is metering out humanitarian parole cases with limited numbers. They do that in other areas of immigration law, like business immigration law or employment immigration law. And so um, I, I think the next step will be that they'll do that with asylum cases. Well, we'll see. I mean, this has been an issue, it seemed, going on for a while. Um, but like you said, now it seems to be more acute in the way that they're dealing with it. And speaking of the way people are dealing with it, New York. So right here, first residence of new Mayor Adams, controversial. Um, this is New York Post. Um, my, uh, this is Tent City. Um, arrived on Wednesday morning, welcoming a caravan of vehicles. They were welcomed with handshakes from top city hall diplomats. So they are ba- they basically, <clears throat> Republican governors have been moving migrants to various areas of the country, especially liberal areas in New York being one of them. My, Martha's... Um, what is it called? Martha's Vineyard being another one. Basically trying to make the case of saying, look, we're dealing with this as a state as opposed to dealing with this as a nation. Democrats may hate it, but all things being equal, I can't necessarily say that what they're trying to get across is wrong. This is either Abbott or DeSantis. Um, the tent cities thing, get into this for me. I mean, D.C. has a slew of tent cities. As small as D.C. is, 
the number of tent cities and in homelessness is appalling and astonishing. You would be shocked to walk around D.C. You can go to the White House. You walk a few blocks away from it. You have people living on the streets. I can walk outside down. And Reese can tell you, guy walking <laughs> up and down the street showing his genitals to various people with his pants down. Every morning almost. Every morning. She gets a, a wide view. First thing in the morning that wakes her up for the show. <laughs> so, uh, like, explain this for me. Like, give me an understanding of these tent cities and what these things are and what Mayor Adams was basically trying to do and basically having a proliferation of these tent cities in New York itself. Oh, well, my understanding is that New York has like a, a guaranteed shelter program. Yes. You know, whether you're mentally ill, homeless or an asylum seeker. And I think that his tent city that he's just set up has space for just under 500 migrants and their expected length of stay is four days. However, it's just really a drop in the bucket because, you know, based on the number of migrants who are claiming asylum and also, more importantly, because asylum seekers who are paroled into the United States while awaiting their asylum case to be adjudicated in five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, um, they can't work at all for at least six months until after they arrive. So that means they don't need shelter for four days. They need shelter for a minimum six, six months while they're unable to work. So I really don't see how that um, solution is anything but, you know, the tiniest of Band-Aids on a large wound. Susan, it's Malik here. I mean, just a question for you. What do you think about, so, of course, things are co- covered differently. So the El Paso mayor, I'm sorry, the city of El Paso, which is a city led by Democrats, um, they're reporting now that they've sent about 7,000 immigrants to New York um, and about 800, 1,800 to Chicago. On the other hand, a Republican governor of Texas, um, Abbott, has sent about 3,000 migrants to New York City. What do you make of this idea? Well, first of all, is it, is it that, because I know some of the criticism or when people were talking about the difference, because, of course, the Biden administration has been doing similar things in the middle of the night, um, shipping migrants to different places, Delaware, um, New York City. But one of the things that those who are defending the Biden administration, they're pointing out the difference is that there are uh, w- what the Biden administration is doing, that there are, um, you know, social, they, they've alerted the jurisdictions where they're going. So there's social services organizations that are there on the ground as opposed to what happens with Republican governors. Now, I'm one of those who believes that whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, if you are sending migrants to any city, I do think that you should alert authorities because there are social services organizations that, um, you know, they're, they're interpreters who can be there on the ground to actually help them. So I actually agree with that. But have do you, are you familiar with um, what's happening with El Paso, and do you think that that's the difference between the two? That maybe that even though El Paso is a city run by Democrats, that they're alerting authorities. Now, I kind of think it's a stink- distinction without a difference because migrants come into your city, they're gonna, you know, they will place a drain on your resources either way. But do you see? Is there a difference between what we're seeing with the like El Paso versus an Abbott? Yeah, I I definitely think that Republican governors are using the shipment of migrants, you know, to cities unknowingly uh, without giving advance notice that they're doing so is, you know, a very cynical form of political grandstanding. Mm -hmm. In the end, although it it may not be a distinction with a grand difference, um, 
it certainly creates more cacophony, you know, around the situation when the migrants land, like, for example, as they did in Martha's Vineyard. I think that the Democrats feel like, okay, you can do that, but, you know, it just shows that we are uh, empathetic and we welcome the stranger, you know, et cetera, even if you don't give us any notice. Um, and then the and then the Republicans think that it highlights the problem. And this is true because this is borne out by Mayor Adams' um, consternation over the current state of immigration um, about the, the there's a limited number of resources that we have available and we can't continue to utilize, you know, so much of our resources on um, asylum seekers. And I think that Mayor Adams is actually right. And I think moderate Democrats Democrats are starting to agree with him. So although it is cynical political grandstanding, it does seem to be working to like to be changing the minds of people and how we approach um, asylum seekers at the border. And that's why that's another reason why I think that um, in the near future, um, there will be serious moves made to end the ability to seek asylum at the border and instead use this metering system of humanitarian parole. And you made a good point about just the unlimited, well, limited resources. But, you know, in a place here like in Washington, D.C., once the migrants started arriving here, well, now our government has formed, uh, created an office of migrants. I can't think of the actual name of it, but here in D.C., I think it's about a $10, $10 million have been allocated to our Department of Migrant Affairs or something. I'm sure I'm getting the name wrong. But D.C. itself is a sanctuary city, much like New York and other places. And so, I, it, it, I, yes, it was definitely a cynical move for um, Republican governors to do this. And just from my perspective, I think that Ron DeSantis went a little too far sending them to Martha's Vineyard as opposed to Boston, which has those sort of social services organizations on the ground. And we know this because I think they went from Martha's Vineyard to um, one of the, not Providence, um, I, can't, I can't even think of the, the locale where they actually went to, but they only remained in Martha's Vineyard for a very short period of time before being shipped elsewhere because they, Martha's Vineyard literally does not have the capacity to um, intake so many migrants. So you make a very good point about, you know, yeah, it's a cynical move, but it does seem as if that people are starting to notice it. So Maybe, you know, the cynicism ends up working out. But I do hope that in the future that Republican governors, they do need to start um, alerting the authorities on the ground, because at this point, you know, if they're going there, they're not going to turn them away anyway. So I think it makes sense to make sure that you have the resources on the ground. Right. And, you know, in an ironic twist, um, there are a couple problems that have been posed because of Ron DeSantis's actions. The first is that the migrants transported from uh, Texas. From Texas. And on. Yeah, then on to Martha's Vineyard, have all been um, given certifications for what we call a U visa, which is a special uh, victim of a crime visa. So in an, in an ironic twist, what Ron DeSantis did may end up giving them a legal pathway to U.S. citizenship. The second thing that has happened with Ron DeSantis is there's now not only the criminal investigation in Texas, but there's also um, fiscal investigation yeah. on because the $12 million that Florida set aside was for unauthorized documents to be transported from Florida elsewhere. But what he did was he transported authorized document, authorized migrants from Texas into Florida. So that was a misappropriation of funds on his part. 
Oh wow! Yeah, they they are investigating that. So you, may, I'm glad you actually pointed that out. Susan, hi. This is Reese. Um, I just, I guess, in my mind, when I think about the fact that they have placed the men in a tent city, if you will, on Randall Island, which only has a population of about 1,600 people, and it's pretty out of reach as far as New York goes. There's like no train station on it or anything like that. Um. You know, what comes to mind for me is Rikers Island, and I don't know if if that's an unfair comparison. Uh, it's an all, you know, and what they said is only the men are being housed there, so anyone that's coming in with children or a family, they're being placed somewhere else. But this particular uh, Randall Island um, setup is for, you know, just adult men who have come in, and I don't know if it's giving me Guantanamo Bay or Rikers Island, but what are your thoughts on just basically secluding men on islands that are just isolated? And, um, you know, is is this something that may be a positive? Is it um, more safe versus women? I, I'm I'm just trying to kind of wrap my head around it. Well, there are a couple things that come to mind. The first thing is that, generally speaking, when you house um, migrants who are paroled into the United States, um, you want to house them in a central location so they have access to services or like, for example, legal aid to find an attorney to represent them in their asylum hearing. Um, and then once the six months have passed um, in an area where they can maybe seek employment. Um, so the the um, the one thing that I noticed about that that location of Mayor Adams Tent City is that it's not very far away from another homeless shelter. And if you compare the two facilities, supposedly the tent city is much nicer with much nicer amenities. And so I think that that highlights that, well, number one, it puts the migrants in danger, you know, from maybe conflicts with the nearby homeless shelter inhabitants. But it also highlights to American citizens and maybe even moderate Democrats that why is it that, you know, migrants who are seeking asylum at the border have more resources, cleaner resources, um, you know, better care than U.S. citizen veterans or mentally ill or U.S. citizen homeless people. So I thought that in in a way that was a, a bad decision to make them so close to each other. No, I agree. I actually heard a report coming out of um, New Yorkers that New Yorkers um, were being told to leave the shelters in some instances so that um some of the immigrants could stay there and that beds could be made available to them. And that's certainly not in any way an acceptable, uh, it's it's just not a policy that seems acceptable when you're putting an American citizen out of a cot in a shelter so that an immigrant can come and stay and have a, a warm place to sleep. It just doesn't sit well with me. Right. And that's, that is a point that's being highlighted across the board, and that's where I think this cynical political grandstanding is actually working to elucidate that, you know, um, hey, we have a situation where we have a limited number of homeless shelter beds, and if they all go to migrants, then it's U.S. citizens who are out in the cold. And that's something that, you know, Democrats are not going to get behind either. Well. It seems that the American public is on this notion that immigration, inflation, and the economy are the main items. And the fact that immigration is in the top of that list that Americans are concerned about, you may be right. It may be something where there's enough political pressure that pushes people, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, to do something about immigration, whether it's perfect or not, maybe secondary to the point. 
You may be right. We'll see. Susan, thank you for this. I always appreciate you have a sober analysis of what's taking place. And you give us the details without this kind of political grandstanding. It often takes place when you have somebody who's a political actor or either the left and the right. Susan Pye has a degree in psychology from UCLA, where she worked as an internationally recognized UCLA brain mapping lab. She attended law school at the University of Louisville and at NATO, uh, Naoga University of Japan has assisted the Senate Judiciary Committee on Fraud and Abuse Cases in Business, Immigration, and Civil Matters. Susan has submitted testimony to the House Judiciary Committee on Humanitarian Immigration Issues. We are going to take your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Fault lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Receiver Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are accepting your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. We have Malik, D.C. What's going on, man? Doing all right? Oh, how you doing there, Jamal? How you doing there, guys? Good so morning. Far, so good. Malik, it is nice to meet another Malik. <laughs> well, it, it's actually pronounced Malik, but it, but okay. I'll... I remember that. I was going to say it's actually Malik. Malik. That's right. It's pronounced differently. Malik, how you doing, man? You doing all right this morning? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I, you know, I want to, I want to, I'm going to go back a little bit in the uh, fault lines time machine a little bit, a few days, uh-huh. actually uh, more than a week to the, uh, the city camp, uh, South Council uh, scandal in L.A. Yeah. Mm. Uh, because I, I, you know, and, and I'm, I'm sure I, I missed a bit of the discussion uh, with you guys. I mean, and there's two things I wanted to touch on. That's one of them. Uh, and the quote I want to throw out there is, F those guys, he's with the blacks. Mm-hmm. We've got, uh, and I, I don't know if, if, if you guys are familiar with that. Mm-hmm. That, that the, okay, great, that the councilwoman uh, stated We've got a problem. Absolutely. We've got a, a tremendous, we've got a tremendous, tremendous contradiction that needs to be addressed between uh, the black community and the Hispanic community. Um, and I say specifically Hispanic uh, because I, I have friends who are Spanish speaking who, um, you know, they, you know, they tout their African heritage. They tout their indigenous heritage. They refer to themselves as Latino. They actually reject the, uh, uh, the title of Hispanic. Um, but clearly, and, and then there's also, there's, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the scandal within the sheriff's department in L.A. There is a gang, that there, that there is a gang within, within uh, uh, several police, uh, police departments in California, Southern California, maybe throughout California. Uh, and specifically, these gangs, and I'm going to include uh, an organization called La Raza, which several Hispanic politicians are members of this organization. This is a, this is, it's not, it's not unknown that this is a racist organization or fraternity, if you want to re- refer to it as such. We have a problem here. And also the Democratic Party, as the, the ruling class, is stoking this divide and stoking this contradiction between the quote-unquote Hispanic community and black people. Explain that for the moment. How are they stoking it? How are they stoking it? Well, well one, clearly, uh, the poorest border. 
is 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 meant to feed uh, the ruling class with cheap labor. Right. Agreed. That's not. I mean, it's it, yeah. It's it's you know. It's that's not a stretch. Everybody understands this. And as I, I pointed out before, when you step outside on the street and you look at these construction crews, it's pretty clear what's going on. Um, in many ways, the Democratic Party and the ruling, the white ruling class in this country, uh, see uh, cheap uh, Latino or Hispanic labor uh, as a means uh, by which to replace uh, the dwindling African or black working class labor. I see. It's basically creating a conflict between, let's say, poor laborers in the U.S. that may be of African-American um, origin versus bringing in cheap labor that is even cheaper than what they were paying the African-Americans for that particular labor in order to make more money from the standpoint of profit. Your point is, it's a profit motive or the profit motive creates a situation where people basically leverage one against the other, creating conflict among the groups. I, I think that I think that obviously, first and foremost, obviously, we're, we live in a, a capitalist culture and that is that's the first aim. Uh, the other aim is, and I think it's always been the case by the white ruling class in this country, is to undercut black political power and, and to further dismantle the black community in this country. And they're using uh, Hispanics to do that. You know, and unfortunately, within a lot of cult, immigrant cultures, these cultures, I, you know, and I've been to South America, I've been to Central America, the black people in, 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 those, in, uh, in, in, in those countries down there have no political presence, right. are very mistreated. I've been to Brazil. If you go to Brazil, it's like going back in time if you're a black person. Yeah, the Afro-Latino, um, Afro-Brazilians, yeah. Um, Malik, Malik? Absolutely. It is, it, I'm sorry. No, 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 finish. Go finish. I went on a bit, but... No, 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 you're perfectly fine. No, I, I wanted you to make your point, and I wanted you to get it out, especially if... Look, I agree with you, right? Cheap Absolutely. La- yeah, cheap labor in this country is being leveraged that way. I mean, there's a reason that Sanders was against this whole opening the border and everything else, um, while some of the people were for it, despite, you know, any proclamations um, to the contrary. Um, Malik, thank you very much. Excellent observation. We have, I think, Tarif, New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif? Thank y'all for taking my call. I got two comments. First, I'd like to say free drawing the signs. The problem, they have a serious issue going on with the Alan Jones thing with that Ben Dahl lawsuit. Mm-hmm. They open the doors for the next lawsuit dealing with Kanye. Okay, of course, Kanye West. I don't agree with what he's saying about certain things, but he have a right to say it. But and also he opened the doors where the DNC can sue Donald Trump now. They open the doors for the vice the uh, vaccine corporation like Pfizer and Moderna can sue activists, journalists, and lawyers now. They open the doors against me and other whistleblowers and truth tellers and journalists. Well, we can get sued now. Accusing all like Mikey the Baker having contaminated water, or a naval base having contaminated water, or anything after politicians, or you know, for the corruption or anything like that. So we need to nip that in the bud. Hopefully, that the Supreme Court can take it and throw some of these cases out, a whole bunch of them, and just keep the ones with the de- de- uh, you know with uh, defamatory in court. But the other things, we got freedom of speech, right? My second comment is this. Just I was on the phone, uh, like I was on the phone with the uh, Pan Africans group, mm-hmm. out of Africa, and they have African Americans here. One of the reporters was um Karanji. He's one of the um, I think it's from um, Kenya somewhere in um, East Africa, I think. But um, we have discussion on the small farmers in Africa and how we had to deal with the large farmers and the corporations and stuff like that and how they're being drove, drove out of business. And he's one of the correspondents in the White House, by the way, where they never called on. 
you know, uh, you know. So, I, I, you know, I was talking to my, my Pan African views about farming here in the United States, and and I didn't know that Africa, like in Zimbabwe, have a PhD in agriculture. You know, what I'm saying, you know, certain things you just don't know what Africa have. They have still been improving. Need helping on, on the back end on other things, but yeah. It was pretty decent conversation. I was listening to all types of people talking about farming. It's pretty good. Very cool. I, look, one of the things I would love is if they started using the buildings and the ceilings of those buildings or the roofs of those buildings as farmland. Why not? I mean, what's the what's the hurt? I mean, even for that matter, some of the dilapidated buildings or companies that are basically folded up. Look, the government, people are going to be out of jobs, right? Hundreds of thousands of jobs. Those are workers. Those workers can be applied to beautification aspects of the country itself. Whether that's, okay, that building is dilapidated. Let's turn it into a farm. And let's turn that building into a farm that is basically done automatically where people could get cheap food and we're getting rid of food deserts. There's all sorts of things that you could do um, when you have all that surplus labor that you can basically use um, for good ends. Tarif, agreed. Let's go to our next caller, Brave, ATL. Brave, Chocolate City. What's going on, man? How's it going this morning? Hey, peace. What's going on, man? I just want to see if you guys could um, possibly get someone on to conversate about the... Um the uh, Pfizer hearings that they had in uh, EU, the, um, the Parliament yeah. uh, Committee hearings they had on Pfizer. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it's been about a week or two weeks now. Like the, the, that clip made its way around the internet, and everybody was like all uh, over that when it was talking about um, whether or not um, Pfizer actually tested. Oh, the COVID medication about preventing, um, basically, right, preventing it from spreading. Right, but there's so much more. Like my, my point is that everybody's got caught up with that clip, and, and, and you know, it's, it's a great clip and all that, but there's so much more to that hearing than just that, um, that little uh, tidbit talking about uh, whether or not it, it, it was actually um, ever intended to, you know, to stop the spread. Right. It's a lot more, because if you guys remember, um, uh, like this time last year, uh, in the EU, they were going, Parliament was going crazy. You had a few members of Parliament going crazy because, like, they signed these contracts with Pfizer and, and, these, and these contracts were uh, redacted, whereas they couldn't actually, members... They couldn't expose it. Right. There were parts they couldn't expose, <laughs> which is wild, right? So now when you have this hearing, in this hearing you have, um, first of all, the, the, uh, the CEO of Pfizer didn't show up. He didn't think it was important enough to show up, right? So he had a spokesperson there, and they're literally telling them, like, well, we ain't going to tell y'all how much we, why, why we priced it or what, why, how, how we determined how we were going to price it. We don't got to tell you that. We're not going to tell you right. that. Um, questions was asked about um, how, how, how was it that uh, Pfizer was able to come up with a uh, vaccine and, t- and come out, like, I think days after the, vac- the, um, the COVID breakout was, was made known to the public. Right. I think uh, they said it came out like, like two days later and said, we've already got a vaccine to work. We've already tested it on people. Like, how is that possible? So there was, there was a lot um, that was going on in that hearing. And uh, Chris, what's her name? Christina Anderson, who is like, been like a soldier on it. She was going, she, she came to the head of, of parliament and was like, I move that we move ourselves incompetent to have, <laughs> because you guys aren't even willing to ask real questions and they're not, and we're not even willing to make them answer. So I, I would tell, I would advise that everyone go and watch the actual full thing because it's amazing just how shady it is. And I would love it if you guys could get somebody on to talk about it in depth. And look, by the way, to your point, right? I mean, if, if you're the countries of the world and there's a, 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 a vax virus and you have a company that says, okay, we're going to produce this vaccine. Those companies have every, let's say, fiduciary interest to charge as much as possible for that vaccine to get that thing spread right. Babies, yes. 
one-year-old babies, yes, they need to be vaccinated. Yeah, totally. We need to give them that vaccine. And I guess, to your point, Brave, it was a political decision to come out and say that this vaccine is going to prevent the spread. The company itself is like, we're producing a vaccine to keep people alive from a, vi- from a virus. And in the very beginning, like when, it, yeah, the first iteration of COVID, you can make that case of saying, well, look, 99% of the people that are in the hospitals are basically from this. And so this is preventing the spread. It becomes a political decision to basically um, make, take that case. Your point is, Pfizer never tested that. <laughs> Pfizer never quite said that, that the politicians basically got involved in trying to make the decisions to get as many people vaccinated as possible. I have no issue with people getting vaccinated. I have no issue with as many people as possible because it prevents the spread. But I think to your point, it's secondary. Does it? Yes. Does, does it, it prevent really? the spread? Does not. Does, does it prevent it? the spread? No, it does not. Thank you. I can Thank look you, at the Brave. number of people. Put it this way. I can look up the number of people that were basically in the hospitals. Those people, mostly, were people without vaccines. We need, a ho- we need a conversation about it, Brave. You're right. Trust me. We've been having this fight for the last three years. Reese, you're just getting here for that fight. So fair enough. But Brave, we've had great conversations on the COVID stuff. I mean, we've been having them here. Whereas on mainstream media, you could necessarily have them. But I want to thank our engineers. I want to thank our producers. Engineer, single, producers, two. I want to thank Reese. I want to thank Malik. My name is Jamal Thomas. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Radio Sputnik. We will see you bright and early Friday morning. Have a good one, guys. Fault Lines.